There it is. Oh, okay. No, 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 no. At Coco Talk, we'd like to thank our Patreon sponsors. A warm thanks go out to Al Hartman, Alan Huffman, Alan Murphy, Blair Ledoux, Brendan Donahue, Brian Joyce, Brian Weasler, Christina Armstrong, D. Bruce Moore, Davey Mitchell, Diego, Disney Saints fan, Eric Canales, Fedor Stamen, Glenn Hewlett, Grant Webke, Grant Leedy, Jason Bucata, Jason Downs, Jenna Farron, Ken Reichert, Kyle Etter, Malfunct, Michael Pitsley, Paul Fiscarelli, Paul Shoemaker, Richard Lorbieski, Rob Inman, Stephen Wagner, Steve Bjork, Terry Steen, Terry Steggy, The Backyard Shed Gang, Tom C., Tom S., and Tim Lindner. Thank you ever so much, patrons. Coco Talk is an unscripted live broadcast. Anything can and will happen. The views and opinions expressed by members of the panel and the live audience are their own and not necessarily those of the Coco Talk show, its sponsors, affiliates, or subsidiaries. Open minds encourage. Sense of humor recommended. If any off-color comments were made, we're sorry. Hi, this is Dale Leader, designer of TRS-80 Color Baseball, and you're listening to Coco Talk. Coco Talk, the world's leading live talk show featuring the Tandy Calor computer. It's time to drop your socks, grab your real time clocks, and let's rock. Coco Talk is rocking the 8 bit world, keeping the Tandy flame alive. We may be mocked, but we'll never stop, because Coco Talk is rocking the 8 bit world. Okay, here we are. <laughs> Somebody in that chat can just uh, let us know if they can hear us okay. Unless uh, Marco Barroza wants to do a quick check of the audio. He's muted. And has ice cream hanging off his lip. Yeah. <laughs> I can hear it. Okay. Tim Sounds says good. he can hear us okay. So welcome everyone to part two of episode 170 because four hours wasn't enough earlier today. So basically we're going to be doing some uh, news catch up because we didn't have a chance to do the news last week and uh, we had quite a bit last week and now we have even more backlogged and we don't want to wait another week and then have a show that's five hours long of nothing but news. So uh, today we've got a, a limited panel at the moment. We had a couple of people that went into food comas apparently after the, the marathon interview earlier. If you guys haven't caught that yet, the interview with Glenn Donald went quite well. Um, I had a lot of interesting 
stories from him that uh, we all got to hear and some rumors finally dispelled and solidified after decades. So it's quite interesting. So anyway, uh, joining us on the panel today, we've got Mark Oberholzer. Howdy there. Glad to be here. We've also got our host streamer, Mark Bosley. Hi. Hope I can find the right button to push. We got some wackadingy uh, Australian boomerangy guy named Nick Morentes. Frankie, good day, everyone. <laughs> and we got Chet Simpson who's just sitting around digging holes. <laughs> and I'm uh, Curtis Boyle, of course. So, um, do we want to do the news intro, or do we want to just go straight into the news? Oh, we'll yeah. go into the intro. Do the intro. Try to make it at least sort of professional. From around the world, what you need to know. Get caught up on news with El Curtis. And now a Muppet News Flash. Okay. Yeah, it's on the stream. Okay. Okay, so I'm going to uh, share my screen now. You got screen sharing enabled there, Mark? Um, yes, I believe I do. <laughs> Yes, you should be able to share. Okie dokie. Hey, okay, can everybody see that? Yep. Okay, so first up, and I was hoping Ron was actually going to be on the earlier show when we were playing the news then, but he actually got uh, torn away and wasn't able to make the show at all. <clears throat> but he dug out some old pictures he did of the old A-Bus, which was a product that was actually cross-platform. It was a kind of an expansion, kind of like a multi-pack, and they sold a ton of hardware I.O. cards for it, timers and clocks and uh, voltage measuring things. And I'm not a hardware guy, so I have no idea what I'm talking about, but um, a whole bunch of hardware basically, but he pulled out some old pictures of it from uh, some old club meetings that he'd been there. So that's the actual bus plane there. Uh, in this particular case, it's a five slot model. And you'd plug that into the Coco and then you'd have access to all these cards. And this actually came out, if I remember correctly, even before the multi-pack from Tandy came out. And unlike the multi-pack from Tandy, which was meant to run game cartridges, they actually wired it up in, in some ways to make it easier to launch a game cartridge rather than actually do better hardware support. Um, this was actually designed for hardware. And there's a whole bunch of uh, cards. Like I said, there used to be full page ads of all the cards available. These were also available in the Apple IIs and some other machines at the time as well. So uh, he had some sense. old pictures here from one of their old club meetings here. You can see some notes here about using the real-time clock, using the A to D converter. There's D to A converters and all kinds of things, interrupt controllers, et cetera. So if you're a hardware tinker, this was an awesome thing to have back in the day. Now they're fairly rare from what I've seen. I've only, this is only the second time I've actually seen one uh, since you know Rainbow Fest days. Um, but they were they were quite popular with the hardware tinkers. So that was that was really cool. And um, thanks Thron for putting those pictures up because I haven't seen one of those in decades. Next up, and this is actually a little bit of old news at this point, uh, but if you remember the Coca Collector show on YouTube, which Boise Pete does, he's been going through a couple of you know vintage uh, Coco systems with some unique features on them. And this one was in particular, was a Coco 3 that Marty Goodman used to own. And of course, Marty being a hardware hacker himself, put all kinds of like custom mods and everything else on it. He kind of showed it on the episode. And then uh, Boise, who's actually starting to downsize his collection uh, decided to put it on eBay and he actually ended up selling it I think about a week week and a half ago and it went for 177.50 US or you know for Australians like Nick 250 dollars. Ouch. So uh, I'm I'm glad the Coco actually got out uh, to a good home. We, we another story we coming up here is Ed Snyder went you know rummaging through all of his stuff. 
and he's got like 60 cocos kicking around so now if you people are wondering why you can't find them on ebay it's because ed's got them all <laughs> um and we'd like to encourage i mean obviously he's a hardware designer he does need some spares in case something blows up but it would be nice to get some of these out because a lot of people have been trying to get especially coco threes and the ebay prices are starting to get just insane uh for those that actually want the hardware and you know don't want to deal with just the emulators which i think something that's uh you went through chet didn't you um you took you a while to find a working coco 3 to order if i remember correctly <laughs> yeah sorry i was on mute yeah it, it uh <laughs> when i started looking it actually took a while but uh uh once the first one popped up it, uh, there was like five of them i just snatched them up and uh i mean because there was well the, the the first one that i got the first one that i actually uh purchased was uh it was a 128k coco 3 it, it looked you know a little bit yellow but the power cord had been cut so i ended up getting that one for 100 bucks okay for 120k with the power cord cut so repairs required yeah so and i had a i i had a uh a coco 2 so i just pulled the power supply out stuck into that and like voila it works and so i had that and then i've got a couple then i got two 512ks and another 128k you know some of that's for, for testing and, and some of that's uh, uh for a giveaway so so have you got any upgraded to the two meg yet or no, no, I'm going to be doing that here pretty soon. I, uh, uh, that'll be part of my next project. Oh, okay, cool. Keep us posted on that. I'm excited about that. Oh, yeah, that's that's going to be a fun one. You're going to love it. <laughs> that almost sounds like a threat coming from you, but... <laughs> huh? You're going to love it. You're going to, you're going to love it like David loves a grease weasel. Oh, now I'm really scared. Yeah, Nimble in the chat says the lowest he's seen a Coco 3 around these days is 170 to $200. That's about right, yeah. Oops. Greedy bastards. More than what they sold for new. Yeah, getting there. Uh, next up, Brian Schubring. Now, we kind of showed this briefly on last week's show, I believe it was, that he'd found this when we went through acquisitions, and he actually went and took some scans of it so we can see it better. And there's this microprocessor technology course, and there was a Coco 2 version later on, there was a Coco 3 version, and he's actually got some pieces of both in here. Uh, and this is a kit I'd never even heard of, never mind seen before. So I'll zoom it up here. But here's like the cover of the Coco 3 version. It was basically you get this special customized board that comes with it. You also get some software and cassette. On the Coco 3 version, you actually got a disk drive with it with some disk stuff too. Even included the color TV uh, and the slimline disk drive in this case with the Coco 3 version. And here's the earlier Coco 2 version, but with the disk drive added. That's electronics training course from McGraw Hill, which I believe is still around actually. And here's the Colorbug monitor, which I don't know if anybody here has ever seen actually run. I'm not sure what its monitor is like compared to some of the other ones I've seen in the past. And then they had a basic from visible registers, which is kind of to teach you some of the, the 6809 stuff as well as the hardware. So it kind of taught you the CPU as well. And there's the, with the entire package of what you got in the Coco 2 days. All the manuals, the, the Coco itself, the TV, the hardware add-on board that monitors stuff, the cassette software, the disk drive. They even threw in a joystick, which I'm not sure why they did that for hardware course, except maybe to teach you how potentiometers worked or something. And there's the parts you put together to make your kit. nerds um, <laughs> this is just a picture of people actually using the kit so and th this was actually available for multiple other computers too it wasn't just the coco they had training courses on other machines as well so 
there's some literature for it as well. Anyway, it looks like a really interesting thing. I don't remember ever seeing this. I don't know if anyone on the panel ever saw these or if these ever got outside of the United States. I, Nick, did you ever see them down in Australia? I know I didn't see them in Canada. Nah, nah, never, never saw it. And Mark Bosley, have you ever seen that? You're kind of a hardware guy. No, I hadn't seen that. So hopefully uh, Brian will find some of the software and maybe post it in the archives so we can kind of get caught up and some of the manuals if you can scan those too and kind of see what the whole thing was about because it'd be an interesting piece of history. Obviously there was some sort of a deal between McGraw-Hill and Radio Shack. Next up is a video from somebody I'd not seen before. Um, the YouTube channel is called Newsmakers Tech and it's a Tandy Lab episode. And I won't play the whole video here, but basically what he does is he unboxes the entire color computer family. Well, he kind of doesn't unbox Coke 3 because it doesn't have a box. But he, uh, you know, he received a Coco 1, he received a Coco 2, uh, a Coco 3, and an MC10. And he actually goes through and unboxes, and then you know, kind of not knowing what the computer is, you will kind of go through in the box, the contents, and most of the time accurately, you know, tell you what's in it. Sometimes he's kind of guessing. It's um, like a Coco 1. Yeah, yeah, he goes in the uh, the order of Coco 1, 2, 3, then MC10 is kind of a bonus round at the end. And of course, YouTube's going to act up because it's YouTube. Anyway, it's a, it's a pretty lengthy video. It's 14 minutes. Uh, he's planning on doing some follow-ups with it later, uh, actually running stuff on it, which I haven't seen any of that yet, so I'll keep an eye on his channel. Uh, but it was pr pretty, pretty cool. Uh, we're getting a lot of new blood, I guess, new Coco blood. People have not been in the Coco hobby before. Um, in fact, you'll see some uh, stories here a little bit later with some quite young people. Actually, the demographics actually going down, uh, which is good because uh, I mean we can't just have us old farts, you know, doing this all the time. We need some young blood to fire us up and keep us honest, type of thing. So, next up after that, Sheldon McDonald. Oh, go away, you thing. Is working on a new RS-DOS disk imaging tool for Windows. And he was wondering about some new ways to make it even more useful than it is now. And it's got some features we've kind of seen. I think it was Paul Fiscarelli's got something similar to this going on, but he's actually yeah. also doing it for OS 9, if I remember. I think, Nick, you've been playing with that one, or was it somebody else's you're playing with that? I can't remember. Oh, I played with an early version of that, but uh, I think I, I uh, entered a message here suggesting if he can do uh, dual pane or... Uh, display have two DSKs open at once, which he's done apparently. If you if if you scroll down, okay. he's got a picture of it updated. Yeah, click on the second picture. Oh, wherever it is. Well, that's the actual download, I think, isn't it? Uh, there should be a second picture there. It, well, this is Louis Fernandez's Coke Disc Util. Because, like I said, there's been a few of these projects. Yeah, no, around. but no, there was a second picture. Um, it was the other day. <laughs> I'll see if I can find it here. Keep talking, Nick. <laughs> I'm mad. So I'm you requested there it. There it is. There it is. Oh, is that it? No, it's not. It almost is. It's got a, a window popped up in front of it. Okay, so <laughs> that is the dual pane you were talking about. Though. It is, but there was a newer. Uh, there was another picture, but anyway. So basically, that's that's showing two disk images side by side, I presume. Yeah, yeah. And you can so copy you just, files, drag them back and forth. Yeah, drag from one window to the other. See, what uh, we need is something like this that I can also do RS-DOS and OS9 disk. So you can actually copy files between them in case you need to, you know, yeah. say, duplicate sound files or something like that. Yeah. And I know Paul was doing one that actually had, like, raw, you know, reads, and it would actually do ASCII and detokenize BASIC and, you know, Yeah, it was, and, his did a lot of things. 
Uh, this this one too, if I remember correctly, Sheldon said this one is for Windows only. It's not cross-platform yeah. with yeah, OS 10 right. or Linux, right? Yeah. Anyway, it's good that a lot of people are writing these utilities because, I mean, we're all switching to disk images, you know, even on the Cocoa SDC. So this just makes it a lot easier for people to transfer their files around between their systems. Uh, and the more user-friendly versions of these, I think the, the better will help the, the beginners and the yeah. new people that are I, coming into. I found the, the uh, picture. If you scroll down a little bit more, it's a little bit lower. Uh, it's a bit lower, is it? There There's it is. There. That's the one I'm thinking of. See, I'm not mad. Well, yeah, <laughs> well, you still are, but. Shut up. Yeah. Slightly less mad. <laughs> Yeah, that that's a more updated picture. Okay, yeah, I can see in the middle of their move and copy yeah, between the two. Yeah, pages. that's it. <laughs> now, is he supporting um, like ADOS formats and stuff for the longer? I disc? don't know. Yeah, because one thing I wanted to try, like the Amigos had their uh, charity thing, and one of the competitions they had on the Amiga side was uh, making mod files, and I wanted to try to you know set it up a disc image for Aaron to try to play some of those on Socks uh, mod player for the Coco Three because I thought it'd be pretty cool. And also a bit of support for their thing, but uh, every single mod they had was at least 200k long. Some were 600k, and I I know Sock mentioned in the documentation for the mod player that it will handle larger discs, but your DOS has to basically natively host that. He doesn't directly do anything patching wise to modify the disc basic to do that. And I don't know, do we have a standard that works good on the SDC, or does uh, ADOS work with the SDC properly? I've never tried. Oh, I've never tried. The DMK format does that allow any uh, larger discs? Yeah, it does. I, I, well, it'd be SDF if it was on the SDC, but yeah, it does. Yeah, and maybe you can use that. I don't know. Yeah, because I do want to try that because they had some pretty good entries on there. They had some of the actual Amiga people on there in their group actually, you know, compose songs. We could even play them without getting you know copyright ticks. Mm. So you know, Stevie can make his tens of cents. <laughs> Anyway, it's, it's cool seeing a lot of these utilities here to make things easier for the users. Yeah, that one's a good one. I'm looking forward to that one. Okay, next up, uh, Garrett Myers posted some photos from a major cocoa hall he found in North Carolina, <clears throat> which includes some slightly rarer stuff here too. So I'll just quickly go through some of the pictures here. And this was uh, a rather large collection he, he got in possession of. So it's Cocoa Ones, multi-packs, a whole bunch of floppy drives, you know, right back to the original 35 track. Oh, where's David's lad? Yeah. Down to the 40 track, a half height at the bottom there. <laughs> yeah, it's David's lad's wet dream is what it is. <laughs> uh, then there's one here that has the Mark Data Products keyboard, which in, in my view is probably the best feeling keyboard we had at the time with a very close second being HGL 57. I personally would have picked the HGL 57 because I liked having the extra keys. And I had people up here at the local club at each of these, and I got to try them both. But the, this was a very nice keyboard. I've got that keyboard. Yeah, it was a nice one. Uh, some more mini discs. Except play with Phantom Slayer in it, the exact same cassette I have here. <laughs> what was that thing in the front there? Uh, are, are, I see the two disk drives, but what was it, what's in the front? I don't know. I can't really tell. Hmm. Maybe there's a better picture afterwards. It's kind of console. Also picked up some model uh, one and three stuff here, which is what these games are from. The original Dancing Demon that Dancing Devil was based on. Hmm. I remember seeing these the, both in the Radio Shack catalogs in, back in the day. Here's a bunch of discs and cards, including Shanghai and Fexter, little Radio Shack color computer catalog, text edit. Hmm. 
kind of the standard Rayshack binders, which had a lot of programs had in the day. This one, the Picker one's a color computer learning lab, which we've covered before, with all the cassettes actually there too in the manual. Shanghai, Rakitu, card games, which we were talking about earlier. I think that's uh, that poker game, a solo poker game that uh, Paul Shoemaker's working on. I think the Coco 1 and 2 version he was mentioning is actually on this collection, if I remember correctly. An Orc 90. Where it tells you to remove the that. cardboard cover before plugging it in, which would, should be bleeding obvious, but... A couple of different disc controllers of various vintages. Smaller multi-pack, and we're back to the beginning. Anyway, it's a pretty good haul. I did, he didn't list what the price was. I'd be curious for all that. Now, this one here is a little bit of an interesting one. I don't have the actual video to play because I think Netflix would flip on us if we tried playing some of their stuff on a live stream. Um, but if you guys are following the uh, Netflix show called History 101, which is a series, uh, they've put the first season out and it's just, you know, randomly picked subjects. They've done stuff on plastics and robots and all kinds of things. This particular one is episode four and it's on plastics. And very briefly, and I, I took a screenshot here at around the 1035 mark, uh, they start talking about going into the, how plastics evolved in the 1980s in consumer products. And they were covering a lot of the home computers and video console games instead of having the old wood grain like the old Ataris did. They went to much more plastic cases. And this just happens to be the, the transition video they used is the Color Space Invaders by Spectral Associates on the Coco, which is what the screenshot's from. It only appears for like a second and a half, but I just, when I was watching, I was like, wait a second, I recognize that. Hmm. So we're on a, a new Netflix show, briefly. Now this one, Nick, you and I kind of talked about this one. This is a uh, joystick design for the Dragon. Let me zoom that up here a little bit, which is a brand I'm assuming must be from the UK because I've never heard of it before. An Alt-A1. Hmm. But it's a it's kind of a pistol grip style, but it's a much flatter, narrow one than the uh, Radio Shack Tandy one that they sold. And it's got a switch, you know, I'm assuming for rapid fire or something, or switching between which button's active. Uh, which buttons, I think, yeah. On the dragon, anyway, because the dragon doesn't support a second button. Yeah. But I thought it was pretty interesting, because they did, they did have, like, even their, their free-floating ones were quite different looking than the Tandy ones. They had a much longer body, like a hand grip part, and then you had the, the free-float on the top, the, their equivalent of the Black Beauty. But it was interesting to see one of these, because it's, it's, it's a... It's a common base design that we had here in North America, the pistol grip style one, but the actual design is quite a bit different than most of the ones I saw from back in the day. Like most of ours had the little, you know, finger held grip parts, like the Tandy 1000 slash Coco one did from Tandy. And this one actually has pretty well just flat, which is different. And it's much shorter than I'm used to seeing. It does have the suction cups at the bottom though. I'd be interesting to hear from some of the Dragon people, you know, if this is a really good joystick or not. Next up, uh, Greg Dion in Facebook had originally posted the link for this. Um, and I'd missed this. Apparently, he put this up a while ago, but he reposted it because I guess a lot of people missed it. But on his GitHub account, he actually has an MC10 assembly language program tutorial, which includes sample code that you can enter in and also instructions for you know setting up one of the emulators. He has a PowerPoint presentation. 
and he goes through the entire assembly language set and he goes in how to do graphics and sound and you know read the keyboard and everything else so anybody interested in doing mc10 programming and wants a nice you know head start uh tutorial on, on how to learn how to do 6803 assembly language and even how to use their interrupt controller and stuff like that this is a pretty pretty good one and i took a couple of screenshots which i don't know if i still have in here or not but i think i do yeah, so that's like, for example, the first slide introducing it and also mentioning the virtual MC10 and the TASM compiler. And then here's one of the sample uh, slides from a bit later on. We're showing you how to use some of the higher res graphics that the MC10 could actually handle. Now, they didn't hook up the, they didn't have a SAM, so they don't have all the molds we had. And they also wired the RAM kind of stupid so that you, even if you put in the 16K upgrade, you couldn't use it for video RAM. You're still stuck with 4K. So you couldn't even use the highest modes without it, you know, looping back and re playing some of the same stuff without hardware modifications. But he actually has some, you know, sample machine language code here on this particular screen. This is about halfway through the tutorial, maybe two thirds of the way through. So it does get pretty advanced and it uh, definitely, if anybody's interested in writing an arcade game for the MC-10, this would be a good tutorial to go through if you're not already familiar with the machine. Okay, let me just close some of these windows off so I can get my reaction time on my machine a little bit better. Okay, so this is uh, vlog number eight um, on the Roland's Recycling YouTube channel. Uh, this is another younger guy who's picked up a uh, Coco. Uh, he was born in 1992, so I feel really old. Um, and basically he's working on firing up a Coco 2 that he acquired for the first time. And he's got uh, his, his electronics desk here set up. So he's kind of like, you know, going through the electronics and making sure everything works. And he likes bricks. <laughs> actually, he uses it for the soldering iron, actually. <laughs> he uses it for everything, one looks of it. Anyway, it's, it's a pretty lengthy video, and it kind of goes into a fair bit of detail, and he has a pretty interesting testing scheme set up. Um, let's see if I can find that. He's got an interesting amperage testing system that actually involves a heat lamp. Unfortunately, YouTube's being a bear's ass. Today. Yeah, it doesn't seem to. It's also not going to work for stuff that's like, you know, that's going to draw 800 watts or whatever. You don't don't go plugging that into this. But and honestly, it's probably just going to fry. Anyway, he starts fiddling around. He's trying to get a good video signal out, and he made a cable for it. And the original cable's kind of snaky, and then he finally figured it was the cable the problem, not the RF box or the Coco itself. Like here's the original um, signal he was getting. Let's shut the Coco off here. But once he uh, finally figures out the cable was snaky, because you hadn't wired on. and hand soldered the cable really quickly before starting, and then oh my goodness, would you look at that? Not up to this. Point. <laughs> well, that looks a hell of a lot better, doesn't it? <laughs> so there's something with this uh, this other adapter or the cable I was using or something. So anyway, it's it's a fun it's fun bit. He kind of explains his background while he's doing things, and then he kind of explains what he's his purpose in doing it is, and some of his test equipment, how he's got it set up. Uh, hopefully he does some further stuff on it too here. He's only got color basics, maybe he'll upgrade it later or something too. Next up, this one I found fascinating. I was actually hoping Stevie would be on here to kind of discuss this one briefly. Um, this is another person that's new to a Coco, but he's he's very young, like he's probably even pre-teen or right around the teenager era. And he's actually got a series on YouTube um, that he basically goes and, and rummages through garage sales and stuff, trying to find old electronics. He's been collecting CRT TVs and you know other you know old eight uh, bit video games and stuff. And actually, one of the things he ends up picking up here is a Coco, Coco Two in this case. 
Um, so he explains how he found this one. He went with his mom shopping, kind of got dragged along, and there was a Vortex video game store near where she went shopping. So he found the Coco 2 there, which was on sale for 10 bucks as is. And the power cable, just like Chet had mentioned on his Coco 3, the power cable was cut off. Was this some common thing that electronics people did? I don't understand <laughs> while these machines are showing up with you know, power cables cut off. Um, he, he basically said, you know, and this is a young kid, so he doesn't have a ton of money. So the guy said, you know, 10 bucks. And he said, ah, I don't know if my mom will let me get it for that. So he went and he went back and sees his mom and stuff. And then he came back to the store later and the guy went, you know what? We're probably never going to even try to fix this and put a new power cable. Have it for free. And just gave it to <laughs> him. And then he ended up buying a couple of, like, you know, Nintendo Power magazines or something at the same time because he felt kind of guilty. Uh, but he basically got it for free and he hasn't got it quite fixed yet, but it'll just play a little clip here as he's uh, going over his Coco. What, what the heck? Okay, they don't allow cameras there, even though I saw a YouTuber in that same exact... Oh, YouTube bugger up. store. Whatever. So, this TV I got earlier... Can you guys hear it okay? Episode. Is the volume okay? Yeah. Um, as nice as it is, it's actually pretty perfect for pairing up with this tiny color computer. I mean, it's not perfect, obviously. You're not going to be able to put it on this. Very thin. You probably have to get some sort of monitor and then a bunch of adapters and whatever, but since I got this thing and this other CRT just for mer emergencies, if mine ever dies or, mm. you know, whatever, I don't know. I, I'll find a use for it sometime. But, um, this colored computer will be very nice to fit with this, considering it's a, about the same size and it has an RF, unlike the other one, big part. Um, and yeah. And since the only thing wrong with this is the power cord, and all you gotta do is just re-put it on, get the video cable. I don't need any controllers, although I will get some cartridges and a joystick maybe in the future. I might just use this to, to do um, Tandy's version of BASIC. Who knows? I don't really care about these games to be honest, but if I ever find a good deal, yeah. But yeah. So today's episode <laughs> of Thrift Store Stuff was extremely successful. I got a free Tandy Color Computer 2 even if it's broken. Uh, obviously free uh, TV at the end of the street, which I'm probably going to use. Um, yeah, it was funny with the TV. He was actually at a garage sale down the street and he was pulling a little wagon. The guy just, you know, said free pick up, just take the TV. So he got all this for free. <laughs> <laughs> but I find it fascinating that somebody that young would actually have any interest in a Coco whatsoever. So, you know, they might be looking at the next Chet Simpson here for like Digger 14 or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> they already have the cutoff power cord in common. So, Sorry, what was that? It's going to grow his hair a bit. <laughs> <laughs> the, only, the only thing I can think of is a reason to cut the power cord off is if there was some sort of a safety issue, either with the cord or otherwise the machine too dangerous to plug in. I think a lot of places do that so that they're not selling something that could potentially be dangerous. If they cut the cord, you can't turn it on. So they, they say... Well, well, it's liability. not dangerous. Yeah, yeah, liability. Liability becomes the person that has to take it apart and yeah. put the cord back in. Yeah. Does that sound logical, Chet? I mean, yours was cut yeah. off too. Do you think it was the same thing? Or? Uh, I, think uh, I don't know, but I'm going I'm I'm to ask Google. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see, how do we do this? Could be somebody just wanted the power cord and they couldn't see if we're keeping the rest of it. <laughs> the the like worst thing is, I mean, because he's a kid's channel on a kid's friendly type thing set up, he's actually got comments disabled, so I can't even give him any help or suggestions. Like, for example, his is uh, a full keyboard and it says Tandy color computer, not Radio Shack. So he might even have the true lowercase one. I was going to give him a tip about that, but I have no way to contact him, unfortunately. 
Anyway, I thought it's fascinating just to find somebody that young actually interested in it. First of all, in CRTs and the old stuff, not the new stuff. I mean, he plays some new stuff. You can see that in some of his other videos he's done, but uh, he definitely likes some of the retro stuff. He was playing like an old Nintendo in one of the previous episodes, and he's been hunting these CRTs. He's actually picked up a couple of them over the last you know month and a half. And his parents are okay with him collecting all this old crap, which is kind of cool, too. <laughs> My mom crap. and dad would just maybe take the old stuff back. So Mickey just says, uh, just uh, shove the wires in a socket. <laughs> Call it good. <laughs> just don't stick it in a grease weasel. That's all I got to say. Apparently, uh, one way that, or one reason that it happens is that when uh, stores discard uh, particular merchandise like thrift shops, mm -hmm. they will cut the cords on electronic devices so that they aren't usable to reduce dumpster diving. Oh, okay. They don't, they don't know us. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we do it anyway. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and and I, I know here in in Vegas, like when they go through and they uh, like if they do uh you know stuff at the hotels where they pull you know the electronics out, what they'll do is if if they if it doesn't work, they'll cut the cord, just so that it's easy, so so that it's really easy to know. So a lot of people could be picking up these machines. You know, recently they plug it in, they don't, they have no idea whether it works or not. Now they just hear it click. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, and you know, for electronics to click when you turn it on, that's usually a bad sign. But for us, that's that's it's life. Yeah, the power relay worked. And if you type motor on, you can hear another click, even if you don't have a TV to hook it up to, so you can check it out. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. Okay, this next one here is a pretty cool one. Now, the guy, uh, his real name is Peter. He's from France. His uh, YouTube name is Eight Bits in the Basement. If you remember that, he was actually in the chat. It's the first time he's watched our show. He actually sent me an email after the show. He's here right now. Yeah, he's in the chat now. <laughs> oh, is he? Hi, Peter. Good. Hi, Peter. Hey, Peter. Um, he's actually got here, and I'll just do a little bit of preamble before I start playing it, but basically he's got, he lives in France, so he's actually got the SCART version of the Coco 2, the official SCART. This isn't some hacked upgrade Ooh. of a PAL machine. This is an actual SCART machine. Now, he's not super familiar with the Coco. He just acquired this himself, and as a, he put in one of the emails to me, it's a lot cheaper to get Cocos there than it is some of the other uh, machines that are popular in France and he can probably give me more details in the chat here than I can but at any rate um, we're going to try to get him on the show actually here probably I think he I'm trying to remember what he said in the email probably around August 8th so in a couple of weeks we'll try to get him on and then he can actually show us you know and anybody has any questions about the SCART board and the way it's laid out now some of you hardware types like Mark, the two marks etc uh, can maybe go through some of it but I'll play a little bit here where he's kind of showing the, uh, the, the SCART motherboard and you guys can tell me how different this is from Motherboards of the Coco 2 you've seen in the past. Oops, this is probably going to be a little loud. Let me throw that down a bit. Go over there in the way. There we go. Go. Okay, that's the out of the way. Anyway, the chips that are interesting us today are these. They're two memory chips. I should mention he did some upgrades too. Upgraded to extended the, uh, base and upgrade 64K uh, during this video as well. 16K uh, ones. 16K. 16 no they're two 8k which give us 16k so we've got 8k and 8k and we want to swap those out for um for 232k that'll give us 64k so it's easy enough we pull out these two we pop in 232k and then there is a solder point here on the board which says 60 64k it's um it's right there just these two points here just need to be bridged that's all that needs to happen. We put a small little piece of wire just running across the little white line there, and we'll we'll tack it in at each at either side. That's it. 
Now, a quick question here. I, I know the uh, the Model 2Bs had the option for the two 4464K chips in North America. And then mm-hmm. they had the little satellite board. You could put the A-chip satellite board, like the old-style upgrades. But I do not remember those two little white connectors that are right around the RAM chips he's showing there is the way the upgrade was done on this. Is that... That's where you plug the satellite board in. Yeah. yeah. Is that the same layout that the uh, the North American ones had, or was it a bit different? Um, it had the two white strips like that. I think they were in a different place on the board, but everything it, it, it seems all backwards. It's like the processor's down the bottom corner, and on the other machines, it's up on the top. So the, the layout looks totally different on that machine than from a U.S. one. Okay. And also, uh, if you take a look at the upper right corner by the cartridge slot, you can see he's got the color basic ROM in there instead of the yeah. extended. Now, it actually is a 24-pin ROM in a 28-pin socket. Was that the way Tandy sold the non-extended basics, too? Was on yeah, because there's, there's a jumper on there also. Yeah, yeah there's just, uh, right below the, but between, right above the uh, CPU, mm-hmm. uh, there's four, four or five jumpers there. That switched the socket over from a 24-pin to a 28 Okay, yeah, that's basically the same thing he does here. I just didn't know if they're the North American ones. Because all the Coco 2s I saw of this vintage all had 64K in them already, so I didn't know if that was yeah. what it was done. Yeah, on, on the Korean uh, Korean machines, yeah. Yeah, so there's you can see the MP, MP right. pins and then those bridges you're talking about underneath. Right, because uh, when you had Extended Basic, you had a uh, bigger ROM. Okay. 128-bit ROM versus the 64-bit ROM. And then he also showed, I think, elsewhere in the video, I can't remember exactly at what spot, but he showed that there's no TV selector switch. There's no channel selector at all because SCAR didn't need it. So, Does that have any RF output at all? I don't believe so. Uh, Peter, if you want to chime in in the chat room there, just in case I'm remembering this wrong, because I actually viewed this video several weeks ago, <laughs> so I don't remember all the details, but I don't believe so. Well, if we back up a couple of frames, we can see the full board again. No, there's no modulator. Oh, yeah, you're right. Yep. Just the one connector up by the power button, I guess that must be the SCART connector, I'm guessing. Yeah, must be. Now, the power supply, this, doesn't this look a lot smaller than the ones we had in North America? Uh, I'm just remembering this it, wrong. I haven't opened one up in a while. It looks a little more complicated. Like the stuff in the lower uh, uh, left-hand corner must must have must be to do with the video out because that's not on a uh, US one. Okay, yeah, he just verified in the chat too. No RF at all. So there he's you know taking pieces apart. Yes, Mickey, hundred twenty K bit. <laughs> was the Scott on RGB output? I believe it is a version of RGB. Uh, once again, Peter yeah. hopefully can verify Maybe that. Maybe all that extra circuitry in the bottom uh, bottom left is actually the RGB circuitry. Oh, that could be. Convert S video to RGB. Uh, what's um, he saying? He says, like an S video connector, yes, RGB with sync. There's a slightly more zoomed-in version that might might help. Yeah, I'm thinking that that circuitry down at the bottom is combining signals together. Yeah, because the six eight four sevens down there. Yeah, that's what his fingers on right now. I think. Yeah. I don't know what that thing is next to the uh, next to the video chip. 
in that same left? corner. Yeah, just to the left. Uh, I don't have a clue unless he zooms up in here. I can find it. I think this is just where he's kind of going through the chips. Main the main uh, work main workload is done uh, between these these chips here. This is after uh, you did the sixty four key upgrade and the extended basic. Smoke time. Lovely, lovely. We're after getting our upgrades done. So now we're gonna have a little look and see what's after changing. So the first thing to do is check if our ROM upgrade is after working. Obviously, the ROM upgrade works. Just turn on yeah. <laughs> you see in the top left hand screen. That's it's definitely a later model Coco 2 to have the 1.3 color basic because I, I think the Coco 2s came out 1.2 originally. 1.3 I think was the upgrade to handle the 4464 style chips. The 4x4. Four so this works great before the upgrade because it'll give us a result of 14,631, which is correct. That's our 16 kilobytes with overheads removed, you know, for um, for basic and screen memory and all that kind of thing. If we run the same command after after the upgrade, it'll give us 24,871 because now the ROM is a little bigger, the extended color basic ROM is a little bigger, so the overheads are a little more. But what it's actually given us is it's reporting back a memory size of 32 kilobytes. Um, and the reason for this is that this is a limitation of the basic used on the Coco computer. Anyway, it was pretty pretty cool watching. I had never seen a SCART motherboard, actually the original Tandy one. I've seen you know, SCART adapters like we have now, but uh, I'd never seen an actual SCART-based uh, uh, Coco motherboard. So, uh, Like I said, he's planning on being on the show probably around August the 8th. Um, so if you guys have any questions and want to watch his video there from the link that Mark put in the chat, and then if you have any questions for him, um, if you want to, you can even send in the questions to me a little bit ahead of time and I can forward them off to him and he can you know, try to figure out some of the answers to it. If you have you know, hardware questions on the board, et cetera. Uh, so we can have a, a bit of an interview with him on, on that date and, and kind of go through this card. The, the, the video looks pretty good. It's nice and clean. I mean, you had a little bit of capture problem on the one in the upper left there, but uh, looks pretty good. And it's, I think, a fairly rare Coco, I have, I don't know anybody else that has an actual SCART Coco. I don't I quite a few people with PAL it. ones, but sorry. It'd be nice to know more about it because yeah, it is kind of rare overall. Yeah, I'm imagining like I that wasn't even a standard. Like the UK used PAL. I can't remember if the rest of Europe, like Germany and stuff. Did they use PAL or SCART, or was yeah. it a mixture of both? Every, everybody used PAL except for France and like uh, Russia. They use something called CCAM. Okay. So this, this would be basically a uniquely Fran French machine. Yes. Yeah, so it'd be definitely nice, to, uh, Peter, to have you on to show us the uh, the nitty-gritty of that board. And that probably should be a 220-volt uh, machine as well. Yeah, it is. I think he showed the underside sticker earlier. Um, and 50 hertz. Let's find it here. This was his unboxing. Fairly clean, super clean. Yeah, it's in a good good shape, really good shape. Obviously, I haven't tried to solder anything on it. <laughs> Covered in burnt hair. Yeah, here you can see the channel selector. The plastic's not even not even punched out. It's actually still in the the mold. Yeah. And the two TV connectors are a little bit different too, if I remember correctly. 
other than that, I think it's it's pretty close to the ones we're used to. And I don't know if you can see that there, but yeah, it does say two twenty. Two twenty two forty. Yeah. Yeah, but it's a thirty one thirty four A though. Is that the right part number for? Uh, sounds right. I have to look it up. I have to look it up. And the the, the uh, serial number, I'm 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 kind of doubting that you know Tandy sold two million Kogos in in France, so I'm guessing that the uh, two might be a prefix specifically for that type model machine, yeah, or that series that run. Does it say where it's made? Can't mm. quite see the fine print. Three one three four A. And uh, yeah, it's it's European, 220 volts and 50 hertz and uh, 22 volt amps. So yeah, that's that's that. that. So it doesn't yeah. have a country of origin on it that I can see. Uh, it does say Tandy Corporation. So I'm what was the? Uh, oh no, that's all right. All right. Uh, what is he saying here? Uh, sure did 220 volts. We connect to a TV and select AV. And made in Korea. Ah, Korean. That was a cool video. I mean, like I said, I've never seen one of the, that particular. I've seen PAL. I've seen, obviously, NTSC. We've seen various versions of them type thing. We've even seen some rare prototypes, you know, from when they were initially making Cocoa 2s and even the Lux Cocoa and stuff. But I've never seen one of these. So that, that was pretty cool. Never seen a native SCART Cocoa. So anyway, look forward to that uh, brief interview and kind of going through the board here in a couple of weeks. We'll have the guy that actually owns it and did the video coming on for us. So get your questions ready. Okay, next up. I'm not even sure how to pronounce this. Soren Rouge, I'm not sure. Uh, but he did a first boot of a new OS9 Level 2 emulation with a 4K MMU block size. Now, normally the Cocoa 3 uses an 8K. Some of the old gimmicks machines did use 2 or 4K. It's based on the Dragon 128 kernel, and the Dragon 128 was actually an MMU-based machine. Uh, without the memory map screen working at this point, the output is going to the serial port. So he doesn't have disk working yet, so he's kind of just getting it working again, but he wants to eventually get this all running in an emulator so he can run some of the old gimmick software that was based on that MMU size. And I know a few of the, the hardcore old people in the community here, like David Weens, who actually wrote S-Disk 3, I think it was. Um, one of the drivers from back in the day, the powerhouse OS9 users are quite interested in this. So uh, I'll keep an eye on that project. Next, this one showed up on Facebook. Um, Garrett Myers uh, posted a picture of a different video text terminal that I've seen before. I've seen mm -hmm. the ones that just say video text and it has a little you know, light in the button. I've seen the blue ones, which are the original AgVision ones. This one actually has the Tandy or Radio Shack, I should say, the Radio Shack logo replaced and it says Professional Farmers Instant Update. And is this one that anybody else has ever seen this particular model before? Because this was a new one on me. And I wasn't even aware this version existed. And I know some people here in the chat originally thought it was a Cocoa One and didn't notice the fact that it's not Radio Shack and that it's it has got that the light. light. Yeah. Yeah, the light like the video text terminals did. I wonder if it was just a rebrand from a co op or something. Yeah, I guess that's possible. I do, I do know Tandy had made some deal with the Farmers um, Association, or whatever it was called at the time, because that's one place they were really trying to push the Videotex terminal even before the Cocoa was released. But I, I don't know if this was an officially co-branded thing where they manufactured and then the 
farmers union or whatever sold it separately on their own. I'd be interested in the history of that. Up to maybe check with Boise. Go I did a little bit of googling and I never, I really couldn't find a whole lot about it when I saw that thing because uh, it caught my eye as well. Okay, I'll, I'll check with Boise because we did a quite a bit of research in the video text terminals back when he was doing the book with with Bill, Aguidas, and um, it's in pretty good condition. Yeah, not even uh, the paint paint's not worn off. Yeah, like where the where your wrists would handle on the bottom, yeah, you rubbed yeah. off to black. Okay, next one here is from Bart Van Den Bart Van Den Acker in the Netherlands, and he of course runs the Home Computer Museum. We've featured this a few times before because his first computer he ever personally owned was a Coco. And they've got some new acquisitions here of uh, some Dragon and Coco stuff, uh, just added to the museum. And their museum, I think, is actually just open, you know, with COVID going on. It's actually open to the public again. So there we see a Dragon 64, the Dragon disk drives, which was a fair bit rarer to have in, in the UK than they were in, in the States. A couple of the, you know, standard Dragon disk controllers, which are the free-floating Black Beauty equivalents, both the big handle you can hold on to. There's a zoom up. I'm not sure what the little painted dots on the keyboard. I don't think that was standard, so somebody must have added those in afterwards. Either they're blood spatters or something. I'm not sure. <laughs> There's a close-up. And, of course, they're running OS 9, so I like this. And they have this switch here on the... on the uh, Well, several switches, actually, on the several. Dragon drives. Yeah, I'm not quite sure what that does. That's not standard that I know of. Welcome is spelled different. Looks like uh, one says 4080 uh, on the left side, and then uh, yeah, oh 4080 track, yeah, that makes yeah actually the left and right both have that. Then the B switch maybe switches. Were you only allowed to have one drive with Dragon DOS? That sounds kind of odd. So I don't know if that's a switcher between drives or not. And there's the um, actual Dragon version packaging of the editor assembly debugger from OS9, Basic 9 itself, C compiler, and the OS9 system programming manual which honestly is a lot fancier than the ones that Tandy sold. Um, so it looks a bit more impressive. And then Dragonder Extra ed Editi. I'm not even sure what that means, but <laughs> I'm not even sure what that software does. And then he picked up a Cocoa One. This is an actual 4K. You can see the paint rubbing off here. Yeah, that one. The black that we were mentioning before. Uh, because it's 4K, I don't believe the F boards were ever sold with 4K. So this has to be an E or earlier. Probably a D, actually. Possibly an E. So this would be the same model that I originally had. I had a D board with 4K. That was my very first one. And then back to the beginnings. Oh. Anyway, if anybody ever gets a trip out to the Netherlands and wants to pop in the museum, they actually allow some hands-on with its stuff, too. And they've got Cocos and Dragons and Commodores and all kinds of stuff, as we've shown before. Okay, and here's the uh, Ed Snyder, the Cylon, who also apparently is a hoarder. Uh, he went through, as he said, to reorganize his retro computer storage room and said he even found stuff he forgot he had. So we'll kind of go through it. Now, here's a general idea of what, what he's got. And if you're wondering where all the Cocos are that you wish you could buy on eBay, sure. I think sure. we found them. <laughs> he's got an MN1 on the floor, too. Yep. <laughs> and that's really rare. Damn. So he's got all these nice MC10s for you guys who want to want the MC10s. 
must have a lot of windows. Commodore, Commodore 16 or paperweight. I'm not sure which that's meant to be. Um, <laughs> that's the, uh, I believe the M1. Some Atari stuff. Commodore. Apple stuff. Some fancy tape decks. Tech Model 100 floppy drive. Yeah. yeah, the whole floppy drive video interface case. Yeah. There's the expansion modules for the TI-994. Here's his Coco One, part of his Coco One collection. <laughs> and he's got both the older models and the newer ones. You can tell the ones that have the full black background are the older ones, and then the one with the silver inlay, like a third one from the bottom there. He likes um, to have spares. Yeah, and I can, I can understand. Ed's a hardware developer. He's making new boards for all these machines. He's not just doing Coco 3 stuff. He's doing, you know, he's helping manufacture the Coco BJs, for example, and the MC10 upgrades. So I can understand him having some spares, but isn't this a little bit much? <laughs> well, well, he needs to, well, he needs to have every version so we can test the compatibility. Oh, I guess that's true. I never thought of it. But mind you, the Coco 1 only had D, E, and F boards and a very rare C board. I count more than four there. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe two of each in case you blow one up and you have to switch it around. But uh, he's got more in the couch here yet we haven't got to. <laughs> so there's a couple more Coco 1s, including some that even have the Coco 3 keyboard put into it. Or actually, no, that's one of his uh, Coco Mech ones because the color's on right for the Coco yeah. 3. And he's got some Dragons, of course, and some Commodore stuff here as Amstrad. well. Amstrad. Yep. CPC Amstrad. Microcalculator boxes. Um, Sinclair. Yeah, Timex Sinclair. The ZX80, isn't it? The original? Yeah, it's the Z80. Or oh, the American version of the Sinclair Timex. Yeah. yeah. And some development uh, Altera boards. And a bunch of multi-packs. I think pretty well every vintage he's got there. He's got the original gray he's got the fat rounded white one and he's got the smaller version of the uh, squared off tandy multi-pack as well hmm. and there if you want some coco threes and twos i mean uh, once again all the ones missing on ebay here they are <laughs> like several dozen of them well, hopefully not those are not just the ones customers have sent him to fix well he said this was his um his storage areas. So I don't think these are customer ones. I think these are just ones that he has and his own for however long. Wow. Some Aquarius is on the bottom. Those are a little bit more rare. Another Coco hidden away here just because you, you still need more. That's an Atari, isn't it? On the right? Yeah, I don't know if that's a Falcon because it's a dark gray. Hmm. Yeah, it could be a TT or a Falcon. I can't remember what the color those the were. The Falcons were dark gray, but I don't know. Is that a Falcon or is it a spray-painted white one? Gray one, normal one. Yeah, I can't remember. Do you remember what color the TT-030 was? Well, they were the light gray. It was only the Falcon that was the dark gray. Okay. Like, I remember the original STs and, and the various models mm. of that 1040 set, but I couldn't remember what the TTs were. That could be spray painted because look at the keyboard. It was really yellow. Yeah, and the floppy drive is a yellow too. Maybe they designed it that yeah, way. Yeah, so I reckon they've spray painted or someone has spray painted the case. Could be. Could be. There's a Dragon Martino and some uh, more floppy drives because, you know, 
He likes Dave. Some Macs. He's got some Power CP, Power PC Macs under the table. Some 6080XO Mac on top of the table oh. there. Over in the chat, uh, Dave and Sharon saying an MSX on that last screen. Yeah, there was. Sony Hitbit. This one? Uh, no, one back. The one to the left. Here on the left. It's an MSX. One, yeah. Or, or a, yeah, Sony uh, MSX Hitbit. Oh, yeah, Hitbit on the. Yeah, I can see that there. Was that the one that had the, the cassette drive integrated in it? In the, uh, is, that those, is that what those orange buttons on the bottom left are? Could. It, oh. I thought there was a system like that that had the cassette yeah, drive integrated. Yeah, I know which one you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> and say maybe Ed will flood the market and bring prices down. <laughs> <laughs> There's more of his Mac collection, some of the. I think it's a quadra on the right, maybe, or it might even be a later power PC, but I'm not sure. Mac PCs. Plus. PCs. Yep. The original 512, well, not the original, but 512K model. Uh, one meg. The actual was signed uh, Apple IIGS. Yeah. And some centruses, I think, on the left there. IBM on the back. Yeah. There. The was one was painted on the case. The first, if I remember right, 50,000 units came like that. Yeah, and he had one of each, one with the was signature and then just one of the regular ones. That's a TI-99, I'm pretty sure there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Several of them, yeah. actually. 4A, most likely. Yeah, no, the silver 4A. Because it wasn't the other one white or something? I can't even remember anymore. Yeah, the later yeah, ones the were white. Yeah, the new one was, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that's Hoarder Jim, or Hoarder Ed. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, if a person started buying stuff, you know, eight years ago, I mean, stuff on eBay was far, far cheaper just eight years ago. You know, now it's just crazy, some of the prices. I mean, I watched uh, Coco 3 the other day. There was nothing fancy about it. And the last minute, it went from 200 I think someone, by the time they paid shipping, it was over $400 that somebody dropped down for a Coco 3. Was that at it's least like, like 512 or 2 meg or something, or was it just 128? It was just a regular Coco 3. People must just got caught up in the wow. in the auctioning side and just went nuts. So, yeah. So what Ed actually has here is an investment for his retirement. Yeah. <laughs> Potentially, yes. yes. By the time he actually does retire, he'll be selling these for like a grand each. He's probably got enough to buy another house at this point. <laughs> or he's got a problem. <laughs> yeah, he's got a problem of having too much money. He's like you with your, your Ferraris. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, keep my Ferraris in the land room as well. Hey, we're <laughs> going to talk about that, Nick. <laughs> uh, this was one is is uh, from Robin Buckley. It's kind of under sad circumstances. This particular Coco, uh, his dad passed away, and his mom was trying to get rid of some stuff that she didn't need, and so he received his father's old Coco one, a thirty-two K RAM, and a fairly low serial number. This is a PAL Coco because he's in the UK. Um, and some people are speculating this might actually be from the second run of boards because this is, looks like a bit, a bit more modern, but here you can see it's uh, 119. Mm. Uh, I have seen three-digit ones before in the States, so that kind of conclusively proves that the serial numbers were started over again, either for PAL in general, maybe in different countries, I'm not sure, but definitely that number was reused. That was so, you know, we're always trying to figure out what the final sales of the Cocoa were. Because for some reason, Mark Siegel and the rest of the Tandy people just won't reveal it. And I don't know why, since Tandy no longer exists, really. But uh, that does prove that the numbering did start over. So there is probably a bit more than some people think were sold. And this one actually got officially upgraded. You can see the stickers on the bottom from Radio Shack Tandy themselves here, upgrading the ROM to extended basic and upgrading the RAM to 32K. Hmm. 
And he also even got the, go ahead. Were even the were even the PAL versions manufactured here in the states? Because it does say you know U.S. Uh, you know by Tandy on the bottom there. So. I think I think they were. Yeah, the Cocoa ones for sure. I think like we were mentioning before in the skirt one. I think the later Cocoa twos were actually manufactured in Korea, yeah. no matter what country. Korea. They were, so. Yeah. The the funny thing here is, of course, even though this is a UK version of the cocoa with two forty two twenty two forty, uh, it does spell color wrong. I mean, um, the American way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now the the uh, model number there, Mark, you were talking about that other one. Is that the same model twenty six three thousand four A? Is that the same series? Like, are all PAL ones the same, or would SCART be a different? Uh, I think 3004 was um, or is that just the voltage? They have, they have 3004 US one. here because I have one. I have yeah. a 3004. Okay. Yeah, I have, I, I have several I have several 04s and A's and yeah, they're yeah, I, think the, I think the A referred to the F board. Uh, okay. So the this the model number is actually the same whether it was a PAL or a or an NTSC. Yeah, I think so. Um okay. The first version wasn't it a three thousand two. One, I have one also. I have a three thousand one, three thousand four. Yeah, yeah three thousand one a... is a four K, uh, standard yep. basic, and I have a three thousand four that has sixteen K in standard basic. Well, wouldn't this one have been a? Because uh, this one started enough. off as a as a regular basic with four K or probably four K. Yeah, probably sixteen K because it's a three thousand four. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so I probably started with 16k, and then it was the the enhanced extended basic is the 3018, and the 3017 is the 32k. So, okay. So it probably okay. actually has 64k in it then. Probably there was a few of the early upgrades. Where, I don't know if that happened in the UK, but there was some of the early upgrades in in the states where the chips were not totally good on both banks. So they did sometimes sell. There were 64k chips technically, but sometimes they actually did not work. On the upper bank, so they sold them as 32s, but that, from what I understood, did not last too long. And they just said, you know, it's it's just easier to get chips we know work all the way through because it just caused less problems down the line. And they started selling. Yeah, because they just had to match them up as being upper bank or lower bank that were good. Yeah. So they have to test them and match them. And it Which probably has the jumpers on there too, uh, right on the right on the system board there for jumping it between 16 and 64. Yeah, nine. I'm trying to remember the e-board. I didn't have an e-board. I had a D, which only had jumpers for 4 and 16K. If you wanted to go past that, you had to like hack the circuit board. I did have a friend of mine that had 32K, and I think it actually had a three-way jumper. It went 4K, 16K, and 32K. There was no 64K option oh. on the board as far as the jumpers were concerned. Interesting. And just a couple comments in the chat here. Uh, Jim R. said he just paid $319 for a Coco 3. Uh, James Diffendaffer mentioned his first first Coco three was twenty five dollars boxed, so obviously that's from a while ago. <laughs> yeah. um, he also mentions though that the serial numbers were started over for each revision. He has a one seventy five in the original case, but he thinks it's an F board. So that would mean that they would have you know restarted from the C board, the D board, the E board, and the F board. And we've seen some in the tens and hundreds of thousands on some of the F boards. So once again, it, it points that there's probably more Coco sold than some people think, but we. Still don't know, and, and Tandy just their, their employees just want to tell us. Okay, next one here is from Nathan Bird. He's put up some pictures here on Facebook showing his hooking up a Teensy 3.5, and I'll have to let the marks chime in exactly what that is to his Coco 3 and being able to read the data bus using it with some screenshots. So, what's a Teensy? 
It's little like microcontroller. A, yeah, like a Arduino kind okay, of thing. Except, except it uses, uh, I think it's an ST microelectronics uh, processor. Okay, so here's actually dumping stuff off the bus here, and then here's it plugged in. With the, I'm assuming the USB cable there is probably for data and power or something? Just power. It's actually wired directly to the bus. If you look at the pictures, it has uh, wires on oh. the bottom hooking it up. Okay. So the TNC 3.5 is uh, five volt tolerant, so you can just hook it directly up to the data bus on the, the color computer. Okay, yeah, I remember I, there might even be another story here, but there was another TNC thing where they said, I think they said the 4.0 and above don't handle five volts anymore. They only do 3.3 3 or something? 3.6, 3. yeah. So you need to it? use basically level shifters with them, yeah. Okay, yeah, I think Bill was chiming in on that. That hardware stuff's just over my head, so I'll just take your word for it. You could absolutely lie to me, I wouldn't have a clue. Next one, this was kind of interesting, and maybe Nick can uh, talk about this here, because this is an Australian story. So Alexander von Hartmann used to work at the Australian Cocoa headquarters. In fact, I think he was one of the head guys, and this is a picture of him in the Australian Cocoa office in the 86, 87 time frame. Now, that was an alternative magazine to Rainbow, was it not? It was, um, there was the Rainbow originally, which was a basically a magazine being published, I think, in Sydney or in Melbourne. Uh, and they would, they would take copies of the American magazine and then sort of they have a license to, to print them in their Australian Rainbow. But that guy died. He got, he died somewhere along the way. And it all moved to the Gold Coast, which is near me. And they started up the Australian Australian Rainbow um, they were still licensing from the American Rainbow but they wanted to open up a Australian specific magazine so they opened up a second magazine called the Australian Coco and that guy there he was the editor of that mag magazine and the original guy looked after the American uh, the Australian Rainbow I, I never met him, but uh, yeah, yeah, I do remember him. But he was the editor at the time. Okay. For Australian Coco. Because he mentions in the, in the text that he's got a Coco 3, which you can see on the left, and a Coco yeah. uh, 2 on the right. And he was talking about doing you know, things like disk duplication and yeah, double side yeah. drives and stuff. So it sounded like they're pretty, pretty I think, advanced. Oh, well, yeah, yeah. I think they, they did also have a cassette uh, a cassette subscription as well. So yeah, some a lot of the programs that were in the magazine, you could buy them on cassette. So I assume that's what the cassette player there is for. Yeah, because I remember Rainbow. They had pictures when they did their tour of their offices in Rainbow, and they had these you know cassette and disc duplicators that would like write out five or ten copies at a time. Yeah, yeah. So I, I guess uh, Bryce has been talking to him a little bit, and we're going to see if we can actually get him on the show at some point too. Yeah, that'd be a pretty good interview to see what the Australian magazine market was cool. like. Yeah, it wasn't a bad magazine, actually. I don't know if it was a requirement to wear pink pants or not, but... Uh, <laughs> hey, it's an Australian thing. <laughs> Those are shorts. <laughs> there, there is a nice OS9 manual on the shelf above his head there, so... Yeah, I noticed that the first time I looked at the picture, too. <laughs> that just stood out. <laughs> and, you know, like disc manuals and stuff beside it, but... Yeah, notice it's up high, out of reach. Plus, <laughs> <laughs> well, because it's, it's heavy, it's holding down the whole desk because it's thousands of pages. <laughs> I'm really hoping that they can make that arrangement to get him on the show because that'd be awesome to have him on to, 
discuss the history of you uh, as you mentioned if you did work for the australian rainbow as well as the australian yeah. magazines that wouldn't kind of get a history of yeah, it'd be good to hear the backstory there now did you know him at all you said you never visited no there, i never met him no don't okay. know did you advertise any of your stuff in there i did have an advert for when i did neutroid 2 i actually did print a half page ad in the australian coco i sold okay. zero <laughs> <laughs> Well, congratulations. Yeah, thanks. I'll try hard. <laughs> and now you're up to five. Um, <laughs> it's probably the wrong game to put in there, to be honest. But don't don't tell me. You probably would have sold something. But Neutroid was more of a brain F than for, for most people, I think. Okay, we got a couple here from uh, Jeff Salzman, and actually, Chet, you, you you'll be familiar with this one here because it was actually the episode you were showing in the background while you're doing some of your digger testing, um, which is the what? cocoa being quite prominently featured in a couple of episodes of uh, Silver Spoons, and it's a show I never remember. I didn't watch that when I was young. I don't remember the show much at all. So, what Chet, you, you probably know Kurt? more about it than I do. Oh, it was a great show. It was it was an absolute. I actually remember this episode the uh, particularly because. Uh, uh, Gary Coleman was on it, and he was uh, he yeah. was still big at the time. I think this was what eighty two. Uh, this was what the first or second season, but yeah, that was. Uh, and this is yeah, this isn't the only episode with the Coco. I think that the next episode has like a Coco two in it. Um, yeah, I have I have that oh. picture queued up too. So they actually have it working. Yeah, yeah, yeah they, they actually they wrote actually programs to run for it. It's it's freaking awesome. Yeah, they actually had like the text going by, like they're breaking into steel airplane plans and. <laughs> I mean, the, the story was completely ridiculous, but yeah, it was awesome. <laughs> yeah, they actually wrote software to actually, they, they filmed the software running on the screen type thing. And and then they actually drew like a PMO3 picture of a fighter jet or something like that. And then, you know, that's the plans they stole. <laughs> Obviously a documentary, but. Uh... So he's got all these gadgets on him. He's meant to be about a little computer nerd, is he? Yeah, computer whiz kid. And then uh, whiz Arnold kid. was playing a reporter for a school newspaper or something. Yeah, except he, yeah, he's Arnold Jackson in this episode. Not Arnold oh, right, Arnold, yeah. So, right. yeah. <laughs> and, of course, the FBI come to his house, which actually some of us actually have some real familiarity with. So, um, yeah, it was kind of interesting. And then, the, like, like Chet was mentioning, there was a second episode later, done a little, quite a bit later, because now he's upgraded to, like, having a printer and disk drives instead of a cassette deck like he had in the first one, a Coco 2. I, I I did see this episode. I don't know if you played this one, Chet. I didn't get a chance to catch all your streams here, but is that Coco kind of hooked up to his exercise machine? Is that what this premise is here? Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't. I haven't streamed this one yet. I've got to. I've got to find it. But yeah, he's got the whole thing, you know, set up. And I think they did a zoom in on this one too, uh, of the uh, the screen. But yeah, I remember this episode. It was it was awesome, especially when I saw the disk drives and the, and the little CGP printer there because uh, I was I always wanted to get one of those. And when I saw it in there, I wanted it even more. <laughs> It's an early virtual reality um, thing. <laughs> but we're like, kind of like the Apple place, Watch of the day. It's monitoring your exercise progress, right? <laughs> yeah. It's but a where, Fitbit. Did, where did they find the room to put the controller? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't actually know. Maybe they, they probably don't have the drives hooked up to it. It, it probably pr plugs into the joysticks. <laughs> yeah. Into the, and into the deck. Yeah, I think you're talking about the drives, though, because the drives are too close to the Coco to actually fit the car. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> Unless uh, they have that short stubby controller. controller. Yeah. No, no, I don't think that it's the, I don't think they had the short stubby controller by this time because they were still using the full height stand up drives rather than the uh, half height 
uh, side. Oh, that's true. Yeah. I so, mean, there are the white ones, which is a little bit later than the old gray ones, but. Uh, mine had uh, mine came with the uh, with the the older uh, large controller, and it was it was the last set of of white ones. In fact, they would have come out at the same time as this one. If you look at the keyboard, that's not the uh, that that's right after the um, uh, uh, low profile key was keys were replaced. Yeah, it's a full high keyboard. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, obviously, you watched that show when you were younger, Chet, and I, I didn't get a chance to. Um, was the Coco in mo- like more than two episodes? Like, was it a running thing throughout the series, or did it just appear once in a while? No, it, it was just—I think it was only in two. It might have been in the third one. Um, the only reason why I watched the show was because of Aaron Gray. She was, you know, from Buck Rogers and, and all that. So, <laughs> I mean, that was really the only reason why anybody watched the show. It wasn't exactly, you know, the greatest thing on the planet. So. <laughs> But, yeah, she uh, was hot. I remember that. I remember watching Buck Rogers for that too. Yeah, so it, it was. I mean, the, the seeing the Coco there was great, but yeah, that wasn't why I tuned in. <laughs> yeah, they should have had the Coco hooked up as a heart monitor, and then every time she walked in, then we could just watch his heart rate go up. So, oh, that would have been good. <laughs> that, that I don't know if they were still going going with some of those you know, like family oriented standards at the time. I don't know before Bill Cosby <laughs> started like molesting people and shit. So. <laughs> well, before we go too far down that dark road, we'll go on to the next one. Oh, no, I guess we're not. We're still going down a dark road. Okay, so Andrew Marshall put up an interesting uh, cocoa that he got. Um, and I'll let the uh, picture speak for itself as I zoom up this picture here. This is the sticker they had on. I'm evidence. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> Dave was found the cocoa. Their belt. I thought that yeah. was pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, not the normal warranty sticker. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. So obviously, it that. was stolen at one point, and then entered as evidence. <laughs> Either stolen or I don't know what used as a cr- used in the crime. Yeah, exactly. Well, given been bank hacking, or they bludgeoned yeah. somebody with. <laughs> I mean, those I did like were David Mokes. Yeah, I did like David Mokes' comment here. He says, "As you can plainly see, someone has disturbed the warranty sticker and paid the price." <laughs> <laughs> And they probably I mean, got beat with it. There is an odd spot there on that right side. Yeah. It's just like somebody got cracked in the nugget with it. Yeah. So I've never seen one of a cocoa with those stickers on it before. <laughs> I guess the rest of us never got caught, so. <laughs> uh, so there's a difference between getting caught and getting raided. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I did have a friend here who got raided. He was... Uh, he wasn't a Coco user though. He was what was he back then? I think he was an Amiga user, and he actually got his confiscated by the RSMP because he got caught, you know, breaking into computer systems. So Richard Harding here, and this is back to the Teensy, and he's uh, doing some sample code to convert it. And this is the Dragon Group, a Dragon keyboard to USB using the Teensy 2.0. Now, Mark, you have to tell me what exactly a Teensy 2 is versus a 3 and a 4. Uh, the processor's not as fast. I don't remember the specifics, but it's not nearly as capable as the the newer ones, the bigger ones. So. Um, obviously, it handles USB internally. Yeah, and, and a keyboard would be a fairly simple USB interface. It's a slower yeah, USB. Yeah, very slow. So. Yeah. Hey, it's cool that the, the Dragons are getting some of the same types of hardware projects we're doing. We have even some of the same base hardware to add on some of these extra features. So, um, James Jones has a comment. Long ago, someone called me to go to a place where the Des Moines police keep seized items. The caller knew I was a Cocoa user. And they'd seized a Coco 3. I went over there and got it. Well, that's a cheap way to get Cocos. <laughs> Probably even Jeez. cheaper than eBay. Let's keep an eye out. 
Another one from the Dragon Group here. Roger Taylor, who of course is uh, in charge of the Mr. Coco and has done some other previous hardware projects uh, based on the Coco, including the Matchbox, which Bill has. So he's got the Coco 3 basically working pretty good in the Mr. And he's decided to do a Dragon. So he's working on the Dragon 64 uh, base here and he's getting some tips. Like, so the disc controller works a little bit differently. The DOS is definitely completely different. Uh, so he's been working on getting that working and getting some help from Phil Harvey Smith and uh, Karen was helping him with some of the stuff too. And then he's got a video that he did shortly after this post that actually shows him booting it up. And I'll just boot it up to the point where the game is running. He actually gets Astro Blast running from the native Dragon virtualized hardware. And here you can see the interface that it uses. And then Mr. of course can actually emulate a ton of machines. So if you want a good emulation machine based on hardware rather than just software like MAME, this is a good system to get because you can get cores for just about everything. And he's still working on this as a, definitely a, an early beta as he put it. But it seems to work. And the colors look a bit goofy here. I'm not sure if that's because he hasn't got that fully working or the fact that this is emulating a PAL system. I'm not sure if he's emulating NTSC or PAL. I know it doesn't look like this on the Coco itself. Uh, it doesn't have the vertical lines and stuff that you can see on the spaceships and the, the fuel bar definitely looks weird. But it seems to be, it's, it's getting the point of running the software properly, so. For those of you who've missed uh, keep an eye out for when he gets the final release done. Next one, another. We've got a lot of Dragon stuff here today. This next one here is actually a pretty decent book. I, I took a brief look through it. Obviously, obviously, I haven't read the whole thing, but it's Advanced Sound and Graphics for the Dragon Computer. Now, most of it at the beginning is basic, but it gets into like 3D drawing and algorithms for doing that, and hidden line removal and all that kind of thing. And then it has a section on doing some machine language subroutines for like scrolling the screen and stuff too. So it's it's not the simple graphics book where basically just, you know, regurgitates all the stuff you'd get in the manual of how to draw a circle or something with a circle command. It actually gets into quite a bit of detail. So I'll just show you the table of contents. It's a pretty good sized book. Uh, beyond basic is when you're getting into obviously doing some machine language routines. So how to access the keyboard, how to add, you know, draw high-res characters on the screen using basic and animation, sound to synthesis. Uh, and then he does the actual summaries and stuff here. But it's a, it's, it's a pretty decent looking book. I mean, if you want to learn programming for the Coco graphics uh, and sound system too, all this stuff will apply because the graphics are done exactly the same between the two. And the sound's done pretty well exactly the same between the two as well. So this is an actual alternative. And this is a freely available PDF you can download, which is nice too. So uh, if you guys want to learn some of the, the you know, techniques of doing some of the 3D stuff in basic, uh, which I don't think too many of the Coco based manual or not manuals, Coco based books did. I don't think most of them actually did cover that particular subject I, as much as this did. It's a pretty decent book. to cover at all on anybody, any of them. Yeah, like you, Mark, you actually brought up, there was an Apple II one that kind of explained yeah. some of the 3D drawing stuff there that you'd, you'd brought yeah, up. Yeah, this one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So this, yeah, this like is kind of the Coco yeah. slash Dragon equivalent, but it was meant for the Dragon first. And as far as I know, this book never came out for the Coco technically, even though pretty well almost all of it applies. So it's, it's a pretty decent book from my quick glance through it. This one here I find kind of funny. This is um, 
now the, the the layout of the Koku VGA is such that it doesn't fit properly into a dragon with with some of the other you know hardware pieces that are in there. So this is uh, Tony Jewell's solution, as he called it, the terrible tower of turn pin sockets. I will get this Koku VGA card to fit in a Dragon 32 if it kills me. In fact, I've just ordered another 1040 pin sockets. I want to see how higher this tower can go. <laughs> so that that's one way to do a stacked upgrade. Um, and actually, uh, Brendan chimed in a little bit later and mentioned that he actually did the same thing when he was first making sure it would work with a Dragon. So he has this picture here. I don't think he quite meant as many sockets. I don't know if this is a manly thing of how many sockets you can get crammed in there to get it to actually still work. Uh, but he has made an updated version. I think it was either Ed or Brendan mentioned there's an updated version of the board that's rotated at a certain angle that makes it much easier to put into a dragon unless you have one of the taller RAM upgrades from back in the day. Yeah, I have my, my dragon's been upgraded with the VGA on it and I didn't did not have to do that. I just had to, just had to desolder the, uh, the uh, VDD chip and put a socket in there and snaps right in. So. Okay. But it doesn't look as cool. No. <laughs> <laughs> I did ask him, if you flip back a previous picture, um, if you zoom in on that, you can see there on the stack, there's a chip that or a pin that's actually bent over. The one that's uh, close oh, to yeah, the, on the right-hand side there. About the yeah, I, the I mentioned that, and uh, I guess that's a data line that's not used, and actually, I guess that was a common practice that they did was to bend that over um, uh, because it, it causes problems if it's not, I guess. So I thought that was kind oh, of okay. interesting. I thought it might have been a by error, and he said it was deliberate. So, yeah. Okay. Now, I know, like, we, we had some stack things, like when the 639s came out, the original DAT board that Disto sold was put over top to 6809, and they added up fairly high to get over capacitors and other things, too. But we didn't stack tons of sockets. We just had, you know, some pins that actually kind of went inwards into a double header connector. And the whole pin thing was about as tall as this is instead of using like five, six, seven, eight sockets. It was just one thing that you soldered each of the 40 pins to the CPU. And then it brought it together to a double header that you plug the DAT board in. And then the DAT, of course, went off to the to the RAM board. A couple, so of, the Coco, a couple of the Coco ones you have to stack. And if you, and if you buy one, uh, Brendan usually gives you um, two extra sockets with it when you buy it. Mm -hmm. So you can stack it up and get to, to get it high enough. Uh, but then you still have to cut that post off that goes in the center of the board right there. And I, at first, I was a little reluctant about wanting to cut that post off because he didn't have the style anymore that has the hole in the middle of the board that would go around that center post on a Coco One. And I was actually looking at making a kind of like a remote board. There was enough room underneath the keyboard. I was actually looking at putting together a little circuit board with a ribbon cable and relocating the v the uh, the VGA board under the keyboard and then extending it out that way so I didn't have to hack up the, but I ended up, I ended up cutting the post. But <laughs> <laughs> well, I wasn't sure if there'd be a signaling issues or not if you've started putting too much distance on the, on the, uh, on the data lines, so. Yeah, that would be my worry, especially going through all these, these sockets, so. Yeah. But it sort of yeah. looks cool. <laughs> yeah. stack the up leaning like tower that. of chips or something, I'm not sure what you want to call it. I have a, uh, I have a 40, uh, a 40 pin, um, or excuse me, uh, is there, is there, what would that, these be, are these 20 pin or, I mean, uh, are these 40 pin or? 40. I can't remember. Yeah, 40. 40 I believe, yeah. Yep. So I, I actually have a 40 pin wire wrap socket. If you guys remember those from the days, they had the, the wire wraps had the really long pins on them. And like I thought these. about trying, there you go. Yeah. I thought about trying one of those out to see if that would stack it high enough without having to stack a whole bunch of uh, 
<laughs> sockets. Did it work? I haven't tried it yet. I've, uh, oh, okay. it, I, I got it setting there. Um, I had a box of a, I happened to have an opportunity to grab a box of stuff from a Radio Shack way back in the day. It was about a two foot by two foot square box. It was completely full of stuff that the store manager did not want to put back on the shelf. They didn't want to take the time to sort it. And she sold me the whole box for like 20 bucks. And there's all sorts of various Radio Shack things. And I was rummaging through it one day and I came across that and it's like, oh, I'll have to try this out. So I got it setting on the desk, haven't done anything with it though. Okay, cool. Yeah. And the next story is another dragon story, the last one for the regular news here. And this is kind of a unique uh, way to handle the COVID crisis because, of course, the UK has been hit, you know, as, as hard as the states, if not harder, actually. I think their their death rate is actually a higher proportion of the population. But it was kind of an interesting way to deal with masks and still be related. So they actually have dragon logo <laughs> <laughs> masks. I thought, that's a cool idea. So did a lot of other people. Unfortunately, John, we the guy that got these custom made by Contrato a company over there, uh, he's not selling them. He's just, he made a few for himself and that's it. But I thought it was a pre pretty cool idea. I wonder if the place that makes the uh, Coco Talk t-shirts would be able to do something like that for us. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we've only got, you know, hopefully only six months to a year to to, to have these as a, a hot item and after that they'll be collector's items. So maybe we should yeah. get Stevie to start <laughs> making some of those and selling them off. We can all wear them at uh, the next Coco Fest there. Might there have you to go. actually, depending. Yes. <laughs> okay, uh, this here is the home computer course, and this is one Darren Audrey posted, and this is actually from the 8384. It's their 17th course. Now, they've made versions of this for the, the ZX81 and a few other machines as well, but this was an actual MC10 one, and it kind of reminds me of the one that Brian Schubring was showing. Like here, you can see the cover of the course actually shows the, the Sinclair, or maybe it's the Timex one, I'm not sure which, but. It's a ZX81, so it's the uh, yeah. uh, Sinclair. But this here is the actual MC10 version of that <clears> same <throat> little kit, and it has a breakout of the board and what all the chips are and how it works, etc. So this is kind of reminds me of the one that Brian Schubring did with the Coco 3 and the Coco 2. So go ahead. I was going to say, did you notice the joystick? It was uh, very Dragon-esque. Uh, the Sinclair on, one, on you the, mean? Or? On, yeah, on the previous picture. Oh, yeah, it is, too. I guess that's where Dragon stole the idea from. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. I don't remember there being any joysticks for the uh, for the ZX. I mean, it's uh, you just had the connection port on the back. You could plug in a printer or a, a RAM pack, but uh, none of those fifteen that... extensions on the back that made the thing fifteen feet long supported joysticks. Or... <laughs> no, that you're thinking of the TI ninety nine four A. No, that went sideways. One. The, the ZX went backwards, but it, it you could yeah. link literally yeah. six or seven. I had a friend of mine here that actually had a whole bunch, but I don't remember joystick either, to be honest. <laughs> there was a uh, a third-party company that had a joystick interface. It was? Okay. I think it used a uh, the uh, Atari 910. I mean, we, we got kind of lucky. We had a multi-pack, so you had one thing that had four slots you could add extra cards to, unless you want to be like, you know, David O'Connor and actually plug multi-packs into multi-packs, even with the power on. <laughs> My uncle actually had a ZX81, and uh, he made a custom uh, joystick for it that he basically rigged into the keyboard matrix. He put a plug on the side, and so it would plug in. I have it now. And it plugs it in so you can select with ju jumpers what, bu uh, what buttons you want to represent. It's got a XY joystick that you can. Oh, interesting! I'll have to post. I have a post picture posted on my one website. I'll have to post it for everybody. That'd be cool. I mean, we're all into all kinds of retro computers here. I will obviously have our favorites, but it's interesting to see what everybody else was doing. 
Next up, now this is a video that Brian Blake had recorded. I think he said like around 2013 or 2014 or something. It was showing off uh, Bill Pierce's uh, Sound Chaser, which is a multi-format sound player for OS 9. It handles uh, Ultimuse 3 files, uh, Lyra files, Musica files. It'll play some of the formats through the 6-bit DAC. Others it might play through the Orc 90. It also plays through MIDI synths, obviously, either through the Bitbang or the MIDI card that Jim Brain is now reproducing again. So he did a big demo here, and he actually plays a whole bunch of copyrighted music, so I can't play too much of it here. I'll just play like a little schmidge. Uh, but he was showing off some of the features of like the different formats it can play and how good some of the formats actually sound. Uh, if you have the uh, decent synthesizer plugged into it and also showing the uh, the playlist capability where you can actually have a list of a whole bunch you can pick songs to play in a certain order and make your own sort of jukebox type thing so i will play a little bit from here and we'll start off by playing a song that most disney fans probably already know and disney i'll definitely have to cut it off soon But it sounds pretty decent. Right, I don't want to get a copyright ding there, so fast forward a little bit to one he he particularly liked. It was uh, quite well done for MIDI track. Just enter Sandman by Metallica, of course. Anyway, I won't. I like. I didn't want to get a copyright ding on this. So, but uh, it, it was pretty amazing. Like I remember the first time when Bill actually had a synth, Symphony Twelve, which I think Chet, you've you've heard too, which was a very good sounding uh, set of you know, four regular sound chips. And then when you started seeing the actual MIDI synths, like you get a professional Yamaha DX7 or something like that, it even sounded better than that. And I'm hearing that stuff coming from a Coco, and some people use Cocos on stage hooked up to their MIDI synth playing all these songs as background tracks for like mini bands that only had a singer and a guitarist or something so so a lot of pretty good music and, and a lot of composed music i mean the author of this uh, michael knutson actually was a composer in his own right and wrote quite a few songs himself that he included on ultimus 3 um he, he used to like you doing rag times and, and some older style stuff too so um it was it was pretty amazing to hear the stuff coming from a coco especially on the coco one and two because back then i mean that was you know pre-amiga pre-atari st that was pretty amazing to hear on a little eight bit. Is this uh, is this uh, what is it, what's called Sound Chaser? Is that available? Yep. Uh, yep. Bill there Pierce's there? website has it. Um, okay. If you want to download it. Okay. In fact, I might even have it uh, on EOU. I haven't officially mentioned it because I haven't actually figured out how to do everything on it yet myself. But I think I've actually got it pre-installed and at least some of it. So okay. you might be able to actually fire it up even right now on EU five. Okay, I'll go look for it. Yeah. It might be You'll have to install the MIDI driver. Gave you. What's that? I gave uh, Brian um, what my disk image, and I think I might even have, I think it's an, a little bit earlier version of Sound Chaser on it. Okay. I think. Okay. I I, I'm pretty sure I do have it on EOU, though. So as long as you modify the boot file to add in a MIDI driver, either the, you know, the MIDI for the MIDI board that you've got, or you can send it to a PC and have it go through its MIDI synthesizer, you should be able to put the music. Ask Brian, though, for more details. Brian, ask Brian. Um, yeah, I've already talked to him <laughs> this evening earlier yeah. about that. Yeah. 
Yeah, we were on. Since you're more familiar with it, I, I did fiddle with Ultimus back in the '90s, but I haven't really touched it since because I don't have a synthesizer anymore. So, the next one's a very brief bit from uh, Brett Gordon, who's been working on getting some TCP/IP and uh, UDP stuff working on the Coco. I know he's using the emulator to show it here, but he's actually got a kind of a debugger um, monitor program that's running on a Coco three that it actually is using UDP protocol to send the debugging through the serial ports. So I'll just do, a, there's not much to see here, but uh, it's kind of more of a proof of concept at this point. He's still working on this project, but uh, it's pretty cool that he's actually getting some of this stuff running natively because then we can actually start running and writing games that and stuff that might actually you know go through TCP IP at some point. That's the plan. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of stuff he does uses drive wire, so. I mean, he is the one that did that RSC chat uh, game yep. back at Cocoa Fest a few years back, um, Thermonuclear War, or whatever it was called. Yep, Global Thermonuclear War, yeah, GTW. Now, that required going through a drive wire to a PC to function, if I remember. That yep. couldn't run on connect to an IRC server, yep. But now that we've got some of these other ESPs and stuff that can actually let the Cocoa directly hook up to some of these things. Now, Mark, do you know, is there... Like I think one of the issues now is because all the browsers are starting to require HTTPS, is there mm -hmm. versions of the ESP yet that handle that natively so the code can still get uh, online? Yeah, the ESP32, which is the faster one, can do the SSA, SSH, SSL, that sort of stuff. So Okay, so we still but, have an opportunity know, for Cocoa to really get on the web itself yeah. without requiring a second computer. Yeah, and then again, you know, for what it's worth, you could go through a proxy uh, or, you know, and if you set up your web server so it doesn't demand uh, SSL, then it'll still work. I mean, um, the the cloud server I have set up, I do not force uh, you to use uh, HTTPS so that something as simple as Coco could access the web page. Okay. But that's something I would like to start fiddling around once we've got hardware plugins that I can do it directly with having to try to write a TCP IP stack on my own or something like that. If it can have a hardware card that handles that stuff for me and I just get the data as it, as it's assembled back together, that'd be much easier. And yeah, that even, is the oh, go ahead. Yeah, even even the simple like the ESP eighty two sixty sixes that aren't quite up to the SSL, they could still do that sort of stuff. Like uh, the Alan Huffman, he set up the, with the the uh, was it uh, Zamodem, uh, so you can basically use the dial like a modem, and then it just does a serial link with uh, over TCP IP. So, okay, cool. And that is the end of the regular news. So I'm going to stop sharing and let you throw in a commercial break there, Mark. Yeah, we've got a little bit of game on news to add, and then we've actually got some of the people that started in these on the panel, so it'll be interesting. All right, let me find which one I already planned on running here. And now this message. Hi, it's Curtis Boyle, part of the uh, Coco Tech crew of people. Hey, everybody! This is Bill Noble co-author of Nitrous 9, you are listening to Coco Talk Live, the leading live Coco Talk show. Good day, mates. This is Nick Marionettes, author of such color computer titles as Donut Disaster, Rupert Rhymes, and Rockstar Pilot. And I am here today to tell you about the world's most fabulous operating system, OS9. OS9. OS 9 and its current incarnation Nitrous 9 is the most advanced operating system ever created. And what makes it so good? Ease of use. 
I find OS 9 so incredibly intuitive that I haven't once cracked open the user manual, and yet I've been able to create such incredible games faster than the time it takes to sing Walsing Matilda. Using OS 9, I expect my next game, Funstar, will be done this weekend and distributed exclusively on ROM cartridge. OS 9 forever. Any resemblance to actual events to persons living or dead is purely coincidental. Hi, this is Max Jackson, live from Coco Fest. And you listen to The Real Gamer, Steve Stroh. We're traveling through a dimension both of sound and ideas. We're at a place where the mind can comprehend and devise a solar radio, a wireless transmitter, measure time and light. 65 electronic projects brought to reality with this science fair kit. Astonishing, perhaps, but you can find it for Christmas for $17.95 in a place that's known as Radio Shack. Radios, stereos, recorders, everything in sound. today at lcurtisboyle.com. Hi, this is Sean Wheatley, and you're listening to Coco Talk with the original gamer, Stevie Strip. Okay, so welcome to the game on portion of the news, and take it away, Nick. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so we have a few uh, uh, videos here and some other game news. So <clears throat> the first one up is uh, Jim Gary, of course, because he's pretty well on every week. So there's two uh, ports uh, and port updates that he did this week. So I will share my screen to show you guys that. So this here is a Calabeth, which is a port of the very first 3D dungeon crawl that uh, Origin Systems did ever before Ultima. And he'd ported this before <clears throat> for the MC10 requiring the uh, 16K RAM add-on pack. So this one has an updated font that's a little bit more legible because he's using lower res graphics because it's all you can do in the MC10 without hardware mods. 
and it's a little bit faster. So this is this is showing the outdoor scenes, and I, I very distinctly remember playing this back in like 79, 80 on the Apple II. Um, that was actually my first experience doing a D&D style game on a computer after playing the real Dungeons and Dragons from about 76, 77. 77, I guess it was. But the, the font's definitely a lot better. It was actually hard to read some of the letters on his original font. Speed-wise, it's a tiny bit faster, but not a ton. It's attractive. It looks a little thin there. And it was all written in basic. There was no machine language routines in this thing at all. It was just all Applesoft basic back in the day. I think I might still end up, I was thinking about doing this a while ago, I might actually port this to basic 09 and run it at the full res and just throw it in on ease of use with the source code so people can kind of fiddle with it. But it should run in a pretty good clip. I might even make it so it can actually size in a window so you can play it side by side with Rogue or your, your clock alarm or something like that if you wanted to. And the second one he did is he did a port of Ono by Charles Bartlett, um, which we've actually shown on the show before. It's based on the card game Uno, but it's all run in semi-graphics. So he's done an MC10 port of this too with little bits of sound. I'll just pass it a little bit here, so. And he's done some pretty interesting cards. Most of it's just, you know, the flat deck colors and then the, the numbers on them, but he's got some of the ones that actually have the multicolored. If you guys played Uno before, there's some multicolored cards. You can change the color that's being played in reverse direction stuff. And he actually does do that a little bit himself here. Let's see if we can find that one. Sample. Yep, that wasn't it. Oh, here we are. So the one on the right here, you know, changing the color. Oh, went a bit too far. We has got the four colors, and then the player gets to pick what the new color you have to follow is. So, I mean, at this point, <clears throat> the MC10 actually has a pretty huge game library and almost all of it's thanks to Jim Gary. So but we've had some other people doing some other development for it as well. And next up, we have some Chet stuff. And Chet's actually on the call, so that's kind of convenient. Um, so Chet, you did a bunch of streams this week. You did a bunch of stuff, you know, testing out uh, Digger 3 levels on easy and hard, and then you're doing some tweaks did some bug fixes, then you started doing uh, level design of a higher one you wanted to replace a level you weren't too happy with. And then you took a break to play Super Pitfall, which actually I didn't get a chance to catch the beginning of that. So I'll play the Super Pitfall part first if you just want to explain what, what prompted you to pick that game to play as a kind of a break from Digger. Yeah, I, I was uh, I was looking for something to play. I went and I like, I like to find out what you know cartridges I had and, and see what games I had on the shelf just to I mean because I could pull something off the emulator if I wanted to but I wanted to play on the on the on the Coco and I did play a little bit on the on the real, you know on the real Coco that that morning um and I'm, I'm really fascinated by this game because it, it's got it's a very terrible design um I I, I mean I, technologically I like you know I, I like what Steve did with it with the design itself you know I don't I can't believe they actually greenlit this. I mean, this is considered uh, it, the NES version is 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 just terrible as far as you know a game goes. And this is this this kind of stuff right here is, is one of the things where you drop down this ladder and you just fall into fire. That kind of stuff is all over the map. It's just it's it's really terrible. And this right here is the the the, the water. Um, or, so, Chuck, uh, Chuck, were you able to watch our interview with Glenn earlier today? Um, I caught parts of it. 
Um, see, that's I, actually something he mentioned too. The fact that he was talking about games that were designed where you had no idea where you were going and you you had to learn by dying what you were allowed to do in a map. And he said he did that same mistake in Warrior King. You, yeah, you had to jump off a cliff and land in water and die. Yeah, it, it's a really it's a cheap approach to game. It's it's just really weak because I mean you're, you're trying to to present some type of a puzzle, whereas this is this is like a cave exploration game. Um, but now if you play it on easy mode or, or a novice mode, when you're running around, you'll get these little flickering symbols that you have to jump into. But if you play it on expert mode, which is what the Nintendo version does, um, by default it doesn't have you know the mode selection. You don't get that. You have to ju basically jump around throughout the you know throughout the entire map in order to find stuff, and so it gets really really frustrating because unlike you know uh, uh, like Pitfall 2 where you had kind of a, a, a clear idea of, of you know what you need to do, you didn't you didn't really have that here. Um, it, it, it's I mean I, I, <laughs> the design it's I can't say anything anything nice about it. <clears throat> I really can't. I mean and, and I've seen I, I've gotta look at some other videos since I since I started playing this and there there's some people who have just railed on this big time. I think the angry game game nerd or somebody just Yeah ripped I, this. I know on the NES it's been universally chastised. Like everybody hates the game. It's one of the worst ever type of thing on that platform. Yeah, which is really sad because I mean it, it, it could be such a, a great game if if the the you know the overall design of it was was much better, and and that was one of the things that I wanted to do is get some perspectives on some of the other you know games like oh because I wanted to make sure that that didn't <laughs> you know wasn't happening with Digger. You know of course I'm satisfied that it's not. Um, whereas you know it, it, it's puzzle based, whereas you got a design like this where I mean you, your your goal is to die as many times as you can to figure out how not to die so you can get to the end. I mean that your whole your basic goal here is really just to figure out how not to get your ass handed to you. Yeah. Like all these, because of the, the the play area is so small and you can't see far enough down to see what you're going to jump into, but you have no other choice. You can't go anywhere else right. except backtrack to where you came from. So it, it's it's not even exploring. It's just like you said, it's just learning where are the dying points. Yeah, and, and that's and and I mean, even though you've got a, a slightly smaller you know field of view, it's not actually that much different than the NES because even though the, the NES is is full screen, it's also running a lot faster. So your uh, response time is still going to be about the same because it, you're looking at you know a, a handful of frames, you know maybe a hundred milliseconds to, you know by the time that you see that thing and, and you have to react to it. Um, so, but if you know the map layout, if you actually memorize it, it's, it becomes a lot you know easier. Uh, but still, you're you're dying throughout the entire thing to to figure out how not to die. I gotta say, the balloon ride on this thing is awesome. <laughs> I went on that thing several times. I was uh, that was that was actually see it, that uh, how the, the the gun is is floating there. You don't see that on expert mode. Yeah, that always struck me strange. Like, why did they have these bonuses, like the card suits and stuff that you have to pick up these coin things? Why why did they have them flickering in the first place? Like, why not just have it out? Like, why do you need to? That make was it hard part, to see. That was part of the original design. That's that's one of the, the the changes that I'm glad that was made on the Coco version because you could go in and play, um, you know, after you play expert mode, which is I think the default on this, and you get frustrated trying to figure out what you're doing. You go back to novice, you start seeing things, and you start realizing what you actually have to do. Um, so it kind of gives you a clue because as you're running around, you don't have to to jump. You 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 get within a certain. Um, uh, distance of it and, and it starts flickering or, and, and lights up and and, um, and stuff and this is the, the little stone guy he's uh, he likes to chase you around you get these long yeah the Easter Island guy as I call yeah. it yeah <clears throat> yep Easter Island <laughs> so th there was a few things about this you did like I guess so, like the balloon ride you said that actually was fun was there any other things that are redeemable about 
about the game? Um, overall, I mean, it, it's it, it's I think for the for 128k Coco game, it's it's fantastic. I mean, you're, you're uh, yeah, the maze why, is huge. Yeah, it is. It's, it's I think um, 200 and like 24 by 128 or 96 or something like that. It's it's a, it's a fairly sizable. Um, uh, map that you have to traverse. I think they only have the one on this. I think that the NES version has two. Where after you get, to, I, I haven't gotten to the end of this yet, so I don't. I don't know if I will. I <laughs> just the the thought of having to die a bazillion times or, or cheat off <laughs> off the internet to to get to the end. I don't know. It's uh, although I might do it just to see what's there. Um, but yeah, it's. Uh, uh, have you noticed other than the expert, you know, novice mode where you can actually see some of the bonus shapes? Is there any other major differences? Between the Nintendo and the Coco version, I guess you also mentioned the size of the view viewing area. But is there any other, like, is any of the map differently? Is any anything else in the game itself different from what you've seen? Um, yeah, actually, it is. The there's sections of the map which are completely different than the than the NES version. Okay, so there's some so, yeah, originality. There, yeah, there's. I mean, I, I I've got the the uh, NES version in storage. I actually want to go get it because I've got an NES uh, console now. Um, but yeah, there's uh, there's maps that are or the the I think like the bottom of this and the lower right hand corner is is different. Um, there's uh, uh, elements that are different because in the NES version you have um, these uh, like ropes swinging back and forth or whatever you know chain you know uh, uh, swinging back and forth that you can latch onto um, and swing uh, you know across the thing. Whereas in, in the Coco version, it's the platforms that you jump onto and then they they uh, they, they fall. sink as you yeah they sink as as you're standing on them. Um, so those those were a couple of the changes, but I, I you know I think that the changes to the map were because of the size uh, some sizing might have been different. Um, I haven't actually looked at, at what this is. I, I have some basic information on the uh, on the NES version on stars you know, like the size and, and uh, technical requirements of it. Okay. I remember I, I did like the game when I when I first bought it because it was it was it was visually impressive. Like the gra the graphics are fairly well done, mm -hmm. um, and the fact that it fit on a 32k cartridge. This wasn't even one of the MMU banked ones, I don't believe. So you, yeah, so you got that diamond flash in there. Yeah. And, and you're saying on the NES version that doesn't even show up. You just have to guess it's there. Yeah, you have to jump up and do it. And there's other elements. I don't. I don't want to give away <laughs> what you have to do. I mean, there there are there are other things that are far worse than that. I mean, there, there's actually some really terrible things that you have to deal with later on if, if those are actually uh, at, included in this. Okay. Yeah, but all of it has to do with uh, with jumping. I mean, if anybody's curious, if you really want to go out and, and take a look, there, there's uh, um, the the angry game nerd or, or whatever that guy is. Uh, watch his video. It, it'll pretty much explain everything. <laughs> <laughs> I also have to say I liked your nicknames for a lot of the characters, which we can't repeat on the show, but... Uh... Oh, you can you can repeat Little Nemo. That one, yeah. Yeah, you can't not the other one or the other <laughs> one, or the the one up top or the the, the stone guy, really. Yeah, I, I should probably work on that, but you know, whatever. <laughs> Always funny. I was laughing my ass off as you were describing them. So. Yeah, I, I really got to try out uh, Mine Rescue again to see whether or not it's uh, uh, how much has has changed. Because I know that that Steve changed a lot of the the elements in there, so it. it you don't have that whole jumping around thing. You do have to to find them. So I want to see what you know how those. Yeah, because basically it is the same engine, but you have to rescue miners and give them those air pack thingies and. Right. Yeah. And then, like you said, you did so many digger three videos. I just happened to pick one here, and this was the one I think where you're doing some of the level design. Oops, that's not the right one. 
Yeah, that's not my stuff, man. There we are. Oh, yeah. Level 24. And it's going to do that stupid thing again. So this this is a design tool I think you showed probably last year, I think, uh, for actually designing the maps and stuff. Um, is it basically the same version? Has there been any updates to that software as well? or? Um, yeah, that that this is actually a newer version. I mean, I'm not supporting any of the newer features, but this version actually has a uh, has project and world support um, in it. So you get kind of like a uh, you know a, a navigational thing on the left side. I just haven't converted everything over and, and set up my project and updated my my conversion tool to support that yet. Um, I'll probably get around to doing something like that after after Digger just to kind of. Uh, get everything up uh, up and ready for uh, for the next game, but it's you know it's a wonderful tool. It's very simple and easy to use, and and I haven't had any problems with it. It works really really great for what I need <laughs> to do with Digger. Yeah, and I noticed it lets you like you zoom in at any point that you want to if you want to like you know fine tune very specific areas and mm -hmm. and then you've got those overlays where you can overlay the different tiles on top of each other for different. I guess yeah, gameplay it, effects and stuff. Yeah, you have multiple layers. You have uh, you can actually have multiple uh, tile layers, which I'll be using in my uh, in my next engine because I've got uh, uh, tile-based overlays, and then you'll have uh, you've got multiple uh, objects, which are basically just lists of, of objects which uh, are, are stuck around on the on the map. Um, it, it also supports you know isometric and blank sets and a bunch of other stuff that that I have no clue that <laughs> whether or not I need because I, I just don't <laughs> I I haven't found any need for it. Um, but yeah, it allows me to manage all the all the attributes, all all of the uh, um, uh, definitions for you know things like the tiles, how the, the, the player acts, all within this this particular interface. And then I run it through my conversion tool, and it spits out a binary, and, and that's and I go with that, and it, it works really really well. I, I haven't had any problems with it. I, I can build and test a, a level. I can complete a level in a day. You know, play testing, building, and all of that pretty easy. Hey, and you uh, actually showed some of the playtesting here. Like you actually had it compiling right to VCC and you try something and you suddenly decide, no, that's too short of a time span mm -hmm. for you to be able to dig through. And I think you even found one where you accidentally trapped yourself too when you first did it. Yeah, <laughs> so it's kind of fun uh, watching the meat being made type thing. Yeah, it, it comes in handy because I can go through and I can test this. This particular level is, is being built around uh, very heavy um, puzzles. Uh, which you you start to see some of those in 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 the earlier levels like five and and, and seven, um, and then and then the puzzles start to get a little more intense as you you know go up 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 to the level. So this one is is um, ended up quite being quite interesting. In fact, I've actually got to pull some of it back because it's it's actually way too difficult. It, it's a, an extremely difficult level. Um, so by putting puzzles in here, rather than actually just trying to figure out how to get the gold, how to stay away from uh, the gomers, you actually have to figure out how to get to that particular piece of gold. It's not just, okay, run up this ladder, go over here and do this. You have to dig here, dig here, run over here, and then and grab the gold, and then get out before that block that you just dug closes up so you don't either get trapped or dead. So and that's yeah. what this is is here. So there, there's been some changes that, that have happened with the, the, the way that the, the gomers work. Yeah, see, so you can't get in and out of there. So there was no way to get, so I, I added a, a ladder and a rope so we could you know, run back around. And, and it, so it's all based, there's a lot of timing-based stuff. Um, there's a lot of things that uh, are actually pretty easy to get to if you don't have a bunch of gomers swarming around you, which is, is something that you have to manage. You have to try to, to, to stay away from them. There are areas where you can trap gomers. Um, so that you can actually get them out of the way, uh, and then there's areas where you where, where you grab a gold and it releases a new gomer. 
So, <laughs> so you know, it, it's there. There's a lot of different ways that, that you can do it, and and there's there's levels where there's not just one way or one uh, order of, of things that you have to do in order to, in order to get that. And, and it's just it's all within the, the the basic mechanics of this game, and and the the, the very few set of, of uh, objects that I've got things like the the traps to or the uh, uh, the spikes that that kind of slow you down. You've got the um, uh, along with the, the Golgothan and the, and the slime monster, you've got the bats, which really get in your way. And then you've got, you know, the gomers, which um, aren't too bright sometimes, but really they're they're pretty uh, uh, pretty effective of getting to you when they really want to, and, and they do uh, they do cause a lot of problems. So you know, play testing that and, and making sure that you know the the puzzles are doable, that you don't have too many gomers that are getting away, that you can actually get through it within a reasonable amount of time with a re reasonable uh, amount of skill on these having this tool and being able to visualize this stuff in this way makes it makes a world of difference because what I what I used to do in, in you know three or four hours on the cocoa back in the day I can do you know in an hour or even 45 minutes now and that's actually important because I don't I don't have that much time as, as much time as I did back in the day yeah I was going to ask you about the AI too like I know you've been done doing some tweaks to the AI is the AI consistent throughout the game or does the AI actually vary by level um, it can it, it can vary it, it can vary by level I, I haven't use that too much because it's the, the volatility of, of something like that can change vastly and that's not quite something that you just want to throw onto you know the player because it, it's you start changing the the, the the weighted values that I use um, to decide so you may have a 25% chance to, to, do, to go you know left at the top of a ladder I change that you know I flip that around and you start to see a visible difference in that and that can actually be too much of a problem Okay, so basically you're consistent for now, just because it makes it easier to design and, and debug. Yeah, plus there's there's built-in variances that that actually kind of keep that flow going. So you can you can try doing the same set of sequences, you know, uh, uh, time and time again, and you can actually get different outcomes from it because of the way that the the uh, the AI is set up and the way it's pulling the RNG. Cool. I've been having a lot of fun watching these when I have had a chance to catch them there. Sometimes I have to not be able to comment because I'm busy doing something else and I just have it kind of play in the background. Other times I'll chime in, but uh, definitely keep up the good work. It's still really looking forward to this game. Yeah, it's it's been uh, it's actually been a lot of fun uh, working on it. You know, uh, I think right now most, most the vast majority of stuff that I'm doing right now is just playtesting and, and tweaks to the levels. I mean, that's the real big thing right now. The uh, you know th something like the 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 uh, the way that I had to change the, the guard AI for having them run, they can run into a block that you've dug now. If they if they fall into it, then they get stuck, but otherwise they can actually run into it. So if you're digging up at the top of a ladder, you've got some you know corner cases there at the bottom of the ladder, some things that, you, that they need to be taken care of and, and tweaked specifically for um, you know those situations. But it's you know maybe 10 lines of code here, five lines of code here, and then you know some testing to make sure that I haven't screwed something else up. <laughs> um, so and, and you know again these the, this tool helps you know facilitate and, and uh, uh, get that done real quick. Cool. Definitely, we'll, we'll all be you know very interested when it comes out, and also just following your progress as you, as you go through it here, showing some of the live plays and the live level design. Like it's it's kind of fun watching you think out loud while you're designing the level too. Like you know, I'll put this here. Well, maybe that's a dumb idea. I might have to move this over <laughs> here. And, yeah, you should hear what I uh, I, I make some of the comments that I make, you know, pretty much during gameplay. Yes, <laughs> it's it's the same thing when, when I'm by yeah, myself because it's a stream of filthy consciousness is basically what it is. So, yeah, how I close mean, do you think you are to release? 
Um, uh, I'm I'm getting really close. I'm not putting any kind of date on it right now because there's right. uh you know you, there's um you just never know. <laughs> well, no, it's uh, there, I I already actually I do know. I've I've actually got some some busy time coming up here uh you know pretty soon. So I know that, but I don't know exactly how long it's going to last. And then I've got uh, uh you know there's some review because you know there there's uh there are some physical copies of this game being made. <laughs> what was the Sorry. what was the name of the tool again you're using here? Tile. Tiled? Oh, tiled, right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So there are some there are some physical uh, uh, copies that are, that are being made. In fact, I've, I've got the the floppy disks. I've got a uh, uh, a DMP two hundred to print the labels with. I've actually got an LP uh, seven uh, as well. Um, that's old school. Yeah. So you know that that's it, it's tiny. Um, it's quieter, not by much, but it's it, you know it does. So uh, I've I've got to do some of that. I got to uh, I'll be sending some of that stuff over to uh, to Eric. Make sure he's got the a, you know copy. He's getting the the first uh, 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 copies of it, the first serial numbers on it, so at least the first ten. Um, so that's really about. Uh, and once all that's done, you know, the, everything will be released and and. Uh, 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 Put out. I'll, I'll, I don't know if I'm going to put it. I'll probably just post it up to the archive and and uh, and you know send homie a note to say hey you know push this up there. Yeah, I know you 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 you're you know pretty well refusing to accept money from any of us, even though a lot of us want to give it to you for um, you know all the effort you put into this. But you were suggesting possibly some charities or something. Yeah, I'll have a I'll, I'll have a list on the group when I uh, when I. Uh, uh, release this that uh, that they can if they feel uh, the, the need to I mean obviously right now with uh, with COVID-19 going on it's uh, uh, you know that's kind of tricky for for a lot of people so you know that's uh, uh, you know when it comes out enjoy it and uh, uh, you know that's it yeah yeah well thanks thanks for the uh, not quite as colorful commentary so I could actually you know mm. hear you talk <laughs> and then you weren't the only one you know going back and playing some old games like Super Pitfall here uh, Paul Thayer actually went through and he did a one video here we actually went through and played a couple of basic games that he was you know impressed with back in the day as a kid because he's a bit younger than us so I mean he was you know young when these games actually came out so Strata was one I think in Rainbow Magazine that uh, is basically a bust out clone but a pretty well done one for basic mm -hmm. oh, you're going to do this thing again YouTube Yeah, I remember this. This was, I think, this was one of the last uh, rainbow and discs that I got. And some interesting gameplay mechanics too. I think when you broke through the top level, your paddle suddenly shrinks to half size or something like that, just to make it a bit more difficult. But it's like a nice little track screen with you know the little outline, you know, animated outline and stuff, and and the gameplay is actually you know a decent clip for a basic game, so and colorful. Oh, let's see if we can get him when he's on a start of a level here. It's even got a track mode, which you didn't see too often in basic games. <laughs> And then after that, he went into one that was a personal favorite of his called Wizards 2. Yeah, I watched him play in this one. This is an interesting game. Yeah, where you're doing all these spells, and you can have up to four players at once. They can be a mixture of human and computer players. And you're, you're doing spells to, like, pause somebody from being able to do something else and turning people into frogs and, you know, all kinds of weird, weird stuff. Um, it's a game I remember I saw it way back whenever it came out, and I, never, I didn't really get into it at the time. Um, 
the author actually is the same guy that did uh, Fire Draca for uh, Color Quest, which is a semi-graphics 24 game that he actually did end up trying a little bit later because I suggested it might even be in this video, I'm not even sure. A bit of a wacky game that he did a few years earlier as a commercial release. Might not have been this video, it might have been a different one. It must have been a different one. So anyway, he did, covered those, and then he actually went and decided to play uh, Come Gotta Be Ninja, which uh, is actually one of our, our guests today games, uh, Glenn Dahlgren. And uh, I, I ran the OS, or he ran the OS9 version just because it was easy for him to launch and, and get it running. And he, I guess he tried playing in the day and he didn't realize that if you had a two button joystick, you can actually do like, if you hit both buttons, you can actually grab somebody, flip them over. So whenever he got to the people of the staff, he would just die. So he thought the game just completely sucked. And uh, well, he's gotten a lot better at it now. I think he's even said like he got up to level four or five, I think by the end of this video. And uh, I think he mentioned at offline, he actually has gotten to the final boss now. So he's, he's progressed quite a bit. Anyway, for, for those that watched our interview with Glenn Dahlgren earlier today, this is one of the games that uh, we mentioned. I think this is the last one we actually fully programmed. No, I'm going to die. Shit. <laughs> I forgot. He swears a lot in this too, so I better meet that. Oops. <laughs> but it's, it's a pretty decent game, and you can tell the difference between this and Warrior King that Glenn had done earlier. And Warrior King was released, you know, within a year or two of the Coco 3 being released when everybody was just learning the hardware. And he was, you know, still kind of learning a semi-language. So this this game runs actually smoother and faster and has better digitized sound effects than the uh, the previous one. Um, and of course, people progressed more since, like Chet, Chet or, or Nick or some others too, where this actually seems kind of primitive and slow at this point compared to, to what is being done now as, as more has been learned about the Coco 3 and some of the tricks you can do. But this this one was actually kind of a fun one. And when they ported it to OS 9, <clears throat> they actually added auto detect. If you hit clear to go off the window to do something else, it automatically pauses the game for you. So if you were on a BBS waiting for a download, you hear the ding, your download's done. So you quickly hit clear and unzip whatever else, and then go back and pick up exactly where you left off, which I always thought was kind of a cool feature. And of course, if you're running on 6 or a 9 version of Nitro 9, it actually runs in native mode. So it actually runs a little bit faster and cleaner than the RSDOS version did without having to change any of the code. That's where to be here. It was fun because Glenn was mentioning, uh, we were talking about Paul, and, and actually this is what got the interview started, was Glenn commented on this video. And and, and Paul was complaining, and, and you were mentioning too in the design of games chat, where it's just too easy to die all the time, and it's just, you know, your margin of error is pretty well nil. And and Glenn said after watching, he remembers, yeah, I was really being cruel. We're trying to kill the player. You know, we're trying to embarrass him type of thing and that was actually more the mindset of games back in the 80s that uh and especially in europe i'm watching some of the amigo shows they, they talk about these ones where you have to jump literally to the perfect pixel to get past some certain point if you're off by one pixel you'll die and, and then that's just the kind of mindset we had back then you had to be real men to win these video games and now it's like you know this this, this sloppy stuff where you get five thousand infinite lives and and you, you know, you just you get hurt, you lose a couple of points, type thing. But you can keep playing forever. You don't have to like earn your way back through it. You can just keep continuing, 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 you know, type thing. I, I don't know if we've gone too far the other way, and it's a little bit too easy now. And that you know, some of the game players, are, it's a little bit too easy. I don't know what your view on that is, Chad, or not, or or, or um, we, we're kind no, of no. I think I, I think it's I think it provides a more challenging you know opportunity to the player because there's you know there's a lot more thought that has to go into the game in order to create. Create it. You know, you look at all the the uh, streams that I've done in the past week. I mean, the vast majority of that was, uh, you know, playtesting. 
you know, looking at, at what's going on in the, in the game, making sure that, you know, the player isn't getting, you know, screwed over uh, in a way that is just, you know, absolutely terrible. That's going to turn them off from the game. You're looking at, oh, how do I keep them engaged into this, in, into the game rather than, you know, running around some empty level where it starts to get boring. You know, so you're looking at trying to make sure that you're you're entertaining the player rather than, than frustrating them. Certainly, there's going to be aggravation involved as uh, as they you know build their skill set, but you don't want to turn them off either. And doing stuff like you know where you're just setting it up for the player to to die over and over again, and that's that's your goal. I mean, your goal <laughs> is is to kill the player to to make a point to say, hey. I, I control this world. I made this world. I, I control you. <laughs> that, that's going to show up. They're never going to buy your game again. It, it, it's retarded. Yet, yet back in the day, that was more the accepted norm than it is now. It's, it's kind of funny how you know, games have progressed. You know, as you said, they, they tend to be difficult enough to lure the player into knowing that I can do better, I can get past this point, as opposed to being so incredibly frustrating that you just want to throw your joystick against the wall. Well, I, I think in a lot of ways... appear achievable. Yeah, I think in a lot of ways that that worked really well for the earlier games. If you look at things like you know, like 1942, you know, everything on the screen is is there. Its its intent is to kill you. That you're you're going into into battle. That's you know, so that really kind of you know was where everything was kind of situated. So when you get into like you know from I think what 1942 was in what 82 or 81, um, you get into like 83, 84 where you're doing you know more puzzle games. You're you're seeing you know, uh, games like Mario uh, or, you know, Super Mario Brothers where uh, you, you, it's a consistent, uh, you know, tempo throughout that game. You, you're, you're constantly moving forward. You're, you're avoiding things and it, the, none of those levels are there really to, to kill you. There's, they're meant to slow you down and to make sure that you can get, to, you know, you've got the skill to move on. They're not there to just crush your soul. Yeah. Yeah, something Glenn mentioned when he was watching this, and he mentioned during the interview too that yeah, that was the purpose back then, and he's uh, he's evolved from that too. And, and having hearing the, basically the same thing from you, I was going to ask Nick as another game developer, is that a kind of a thing assessment you agree with too that uh, you know the things that game design has progressed where it's not the goal to embarrass the player? Well, I've I've never been as uh, so hard on that rule. I've I've always liked to. Um, let the player progress and most of my games actually do have an end so I do I do expect the uh, player to be able to get through it rather than just dying constantly but yeah back in the day it was uh, that was uh, the norm that well you I guess it was based in the arcade where you had to try to kill the guy off so that you actually made money on the machine right yeah and that was based on the arcades they couldn't have you playing forever it it, that was an important thing that uh, you had to have the people die quickly, so they put more money in the in the machine. So, yeah, I guess that's probably the main reason for the mindset change. I guess I, I just was yeah. thinking out on that. But yeah, well, that now, sense. that's right. Nowadays, most most kids uh, or people play the computer games on their home computer, so there isn't really the money. You 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 don't put money into the machine to play it. You pay online now. <laughs> so. Yeah, I, mean, I, spent, I spent far less time in, in you know in the arcades, you know, actually playing games than I did, you know, playing them at home either on on the Coco or or my Atari or or what have you. Um, so you know th- th- that certainly gives you you know a couple of different mindsets of, of you know how people would would certainly look at that in transition because you know as somebody who doesn't come from that you know world of, of wanting to destroy the player, then you know when I that's one of the reasons why I like you know. Uh, 
games like Load Runner, where you, you go back and you look at a lot of it is, is, is really puzzle based. Um, you know, the AI and, and the, some of the game mechanics are about what you would expect for that particular era. But the game was actually really, really fun because of that puzzle nature of it. And the feeling of accomplishment, I made it to the next level, I made it to the next level type mm -hmm. thing, as opposed to I barely survived. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, it's, you know, it's like with uh, with Super Piffle, where you, you're traversing that giant level, um, you know, once you've lost all your lives, you're done. Yeah, and you have to start over. Right, so, and that, that gets... Uh, like, even and, the arcades went beyond that, because they started putting in, you'll put in a quarter to continue where you left off, rather than have to redo the whole thing, it was an incentive for you to put the money in, but they didn't make you start over and get you so frustrated, you're saying, ah, I just don't want to play this anymore. Yeah. Got to get going, guys. Have a good night. Yeah, you too. All right. Brian. See ya. Uh -huh. Bye. Anyway, a lot of good, lot of good live gameplay videos this week from a couple of, of, of game creators. Actually, I mean, Paul's written some games too, and and Chet obviously, and you know, Nick just released his game that a lot of people have been playing. Rally X. He's working on his next one already. So it's it's a it's a pretty good Coco Renaissance of, of game development here. I know Paul's working on a couple different game projects right now too. So. I've noticed we've also had kind of a steady drop off on YouTube. Yeah, it's getting late, I think, for some people, yeah. especially on the East Coast. <laughs> Not too many up. stories left, though. I'll, I'll breeze through some of these. Most of these were, uh, like, these were actually discussion topics we just had on the, on the game design, kind of related to the Glenn interview. The rest of these are getting back into just more normal stuff. So, next one up here Trey Tomes. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, um, but he took a, a Python Sudoku uh, generator. Sudoku? Sudoku? Whatever it's pronounced. Uh, and, and he rewrote it in BASIC. Uh, that actually works, and he put the source code up in GitHub for anybody who wants to actually see that mm. in action. And I've got a screenshot of a solved version here. So it's just a you know 32 column text thing, but if you're into playing that puzzle game, once again, as Jess Chet has said. Next up is Erico. Of course, he's been working on his uh, semi-graphics kind of Double Dragon style game here. He's got some further animations. And he's got, got life bars working. I think we mentioned that the last time a couple weeks ago. <coughs> he's got the kicks and ducks and punches and stuff in there too that he demonstrated on here. And then he put a later one here where he's actually got um, some of the different AI moves and also a butterfly knife the guy whips around here, the little white thing. I mean, what he's accomplishing here, considering how crappy of a resolution this is, is just amazing. And and it's it's funny. I mean, this kind of stuff would easily have been within the realm of programmers back in the day. Just nobody actually sat down to try to to force a, a fairly decent animation on on these low res games. But uh, I know Eric Averlek, who's you know quite notorious for being cantankerous about a lot of people's development skills, has actually said, "I don't know what I'm going to need you for, but I want to hire you for something to do graphics like this." <laughs> just just because it's it's a, such a, a bold vision for what you could do with a very limited. Uh, pixel uh, size on the screen as well as a limited palette. Like he's got this nice, you know, gradiated, you know, sunset in the background with buildings and stuff and he's got animated characters using 64 by 32 graphics with some limitations of how you can even organize those graphics. So it's 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 pretty impressive. I'm I'm definitely looking this for forward to this project too in in a way cuz it's it's sophisticated for what it what it's working with. The motion is believable. I mean, even though it's so low res, I mean, the motions yeah. look right. You yeah, can the tell animations what they are. The animations is fantastic. Yeah, and it actually looks like it'll be a fun game. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. It's almost as much as Digger Three. 
<laughs> and this one we showed off uh, last week. Henry Reitfeld had put played Temple of Rom because that was our uh, game challenge last week by Rick Adams on his main cabinet. And here's a, an alternative one done by Joey Cabral showing uh, Temple of Rom in here. And he's got his his cabinet set up to handle a variety of arcade games or other computer games, which is why there's so many buttons on the console for each player here. I think there's like eight for each. And uh, but Rick's been really impressed here because he he's never never seen his games in arcade cabinets before, and he's 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 been just loving seeing all these different varieties of it using real arcade controls and joysticks and real arcade buttons. There is no suspension of disbelief. It really is on an arcade cabinet. Yeah, this here actually Paul already covered on, on the tail end of the show, so I don't really need to show this except to just to mention this is his uh, poker uh, squares game. Which I'll just maybe show a brief screenshot here. I'll get the first people to this too. But very well drawn cards for the 320 mode. He's using Nick's extension to do the by 225 graphics mode. Now, actually, we had a question for you, Nick. Uh, you dropped off before this yeah. happened. Um, your patches, does that affect the text mode too? Can you do 80 by 28 yeah. text? 80 by 28, yes, you can. Okay. Because uh, he was mentioning that he liked programming on the actual Coco 3 itself for doing this. So he's running an 80 combo because you can see more of his code. And I mentioned you should be able to do that by 28 instead of just yeah, by 24. Yeah, it does so. the text and the graphics. Okay. So hopefully he's noticed that it actually will help him on uh, doing the coding. Yeah. But very well done graphics. And he's got a little ML routine to speed up to get put buffers for the, the actual putting the cards. But the cards are very well done. The layout of the game is very well done. The text actually for a 320 game is actually quite readable for that small of a font. Another new game I'm looking forward to. He said that he should have this done within a few weeks too. So, and this was a, a, a new YouTuber to me anyway. It was called uh, what is her name here? Mighty, Mighty Heidi Dream Warrior. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so it's an actual uh, female penalty playing downland, and it's, it's kind of like a speed run almost. She does commentary throughout the game. Unfortunately, the video is very low quality. It's 240p. So. It's not the greatest looking video in the world, but she actually plays it right through and goes through all 10 of the screens. So she actually makes it right to the end um, and talks about playing it, you know, as a kid and then, you know, her experience doing it now and some of the frustrations she has at certain spots in the game and trying to get through it, et cetera. So you're going to do this again, are you? Hey, everybody. So I'm going to be doing a walkthrough of the 1980s, I believe, Tandy Color Computer 3 Downland. Um, it was a game I played growing up as a kid. Really tough game. It looks easy, but it's actually hard if you've ever played it. So we have an explorer who's found himself in caves that he's now looking to find. It's a 12 and a half minute video, so I'll let you guys go watch that. But it's kind of interesting hearing her commentary. We don't get too many female perspectives on some of the old Coco arcade games, so it's it's kind of interesting to get somebody that actually played it as a kid and is now playing it again, going through the whole thing. And it's actually one of the better games, too. And here, Marlon Lee came back for one more. He's been doing a lot of Moon Patrol clones or Moon Patrol derivative games, uh, and so he's got another entry in that one called Sand Rover, which is by uh, Roger... Hey, guys. Today we have What's Sand that? Rover. Rogers. Can you guys hear that, or is it too quiet? Hello, yeah. What was that Donkey Kong that was there before? That was Monkey Kong by Ken Kalish. That's just part of his intro reel. Yeah. Coco SDC. 
So this one isn't strictly a Moon Patrol. It's a little bit different in the game mechanics, a little bit of jumping really and, and you know, shooting objects and stuff and the little earth up in the corner. But it adds a few other things to... Um, Obviously, he's got some uh, shapes that actually come up and rear up as you drive towards them. After you get through the first base, then you uh, will get uh, some uh, sand creatures, which is an interesting addition. Like that one there. Yeah. This certainly wouldn't have been my favorite version. I mean, it's similar to the ones in the expert course where you get those things, sort of flowery things but coming out of the pits and stuff. But... The, my least favorite. Oh, not a bad little game. It's it's today. not quite as good as you know Lunar Rover Patrol or something. But it, this was one of the ones that was either on a TD and D magazine or something. So it was basically really really cheap. And that's all I have for the game on news this week. Cool. And uh, we already got kind of an update from Chet when where he's at. Uh, Nick, did you have any update on the new game or even anything you want to announce about the new game? Uh, not just yet. No, no. Yeah. I'll announce it a bit closer to the end. Okay. And then Paul, of course, gave us an update on this poker game. So three active games going on development that we got updates on somewhat today. And I know, like, Paul's doing a, a couple of games he's got in the wings, too. So a lot of game development going on in the Koki community. It's a good thing to hear. Oh, well, also, Erico's, uh, you know, semi-graphics fighting game too so five pretty soon we'll have to have okay. a top ten list like Rainbow used to <laughs> alright well anything else we need to cover it's a bad that's idea. all I had for news we're totally caught up so we I won't have to borrow Mikey to, to sleep again next week here with you know 80 stories in a row so good we can get back to floppy talk <laughs> <laughs> that was funny because actually I know Nick you said you got kind of bored with that uh pretty early on <laughs> but actually like even stevie he said he had fun doing that i mean normally he's the one if you're getting that time the technical weeds <laughs> discussion he's like out of there or you know killing the whole stream by accident but uh he actually enjoyed it and i i think we hadn't done one of those you know technical deep dives in quite a while so it was kind of fun to actually do one again and everybody seemed to be pretty pretty involved with it during the session except nick so <laughs> and mike I don't, I don't think we'll do that too often but it was, it was fun to do it once in a while Go ahead, Mark. I didn't say and anything. Mikey. I uh, me. I, I said and Mikey. Bored, Mikey. Well, Mikey, <laughs> Mikey just doesn't like news in general, so. Yeah. I mean, he was busy sorting drive wire cables and stuff here, or cables when we were having the interview. So. Mm. Okay. so any any final it? thoughts, either on the interview from earlier today, the or the first part of the show, or any of the stuff that we've discussed on the? Uh, it was part two great here? having Glenn on here. He was fantastic and really <laughs> amiable and uh, very knowledgeable. Yeah, like I said, it was it was fun to have a couple of the rumored things. I mean, some of us did know some of the details behind the scenes on some things, but getting the the kind of the behind the scenes part on both Contras and on Sinistar, and then you know some details on the assembly of the Roland Knight had written that they were using for the development there that both ICOM and Sundog ended up using. Um, and, and then also getting Doug Maston who kind of showed up in the chat there uh, to talk about, you know, a little bit about his, his experience with Contras and, and why he did stop the project and had to go to Jeff afterwards to get finished. And then, you know, having Glenn explain him how he had to, you know, kind of organize the transition between the two and try to get the game completed because they've been advertising it already. I think it ended up being like two years late when it finally got released. And there's still some bugs in it. I mean, Jeff admitted himself he didn't have any other playtesters. So the two-player mode does have some bugs where occasionally it gets stuck in an FRQ loop 
the music's playing fine, but the whole game's froze dead. And that seems to only happen in the two-player mode. If you're playing single-player, I've never seen that bug happen. So, so who who started that game? Is it that Doug guy? Yeah, Doug. Yeah, and he was actually in the chat during the yeah. tail end of the show. Yeah. So he start he it, it was his game originally, and he went to uh, he went to Sundog. Yeah, uh, basically, from my understanding, from what we had in the interview, is that Doug started the game and he had most of the graphics and most of the music and sound routines, which actually are quite good. He did but he couldn't get the final logic and the final gameplay itself working properly. And this was his very first Coco project he'd ever tried to do. That was a lot to bite off. A 512K, you know, almost mod file sounding digitized soundtrack in the background, hardware scrolling at the same time um, for a beginner to, <laughs> to kind of tackle this his first project. And it, he said in the chat, you know, he basically just burned himself out and he just couldn't, couldn't handle it anymore. So then he dropped mm. it. And by that time, they'd already advertised it. Because the game was close enough that uh, Glenn was quite impressed with it and wanted to start pre-advertising it, you know, coming soon type thing. And unfortunately, they, you know, it became coming soon for two years until he convinced Jeff, you know, can you pick this up and see if we can at least get it, you know, out the door so we can get it out. And, you know, Jeff eventually did do it kind of grudgingly. And I think anybody who's ever had to take over a project from somebody else completely from scratch, I mean, we've we experienced that where it's it's you have different ways of thinking. I would do a programming thing this way, but this guy did it some totally different way. So am I going to just try to pick up his code and continue on? Or am I just going to say, screw it and rewrite half of it? Cause I want it the way I'm used to. I mean, Chet, you probably experienced that too. I'm, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, quite a bit. I mean, I, I've I had to deal with, uh, you know, quite a bit of uh, code from other people over the years. And uh, yeah, I've had, uh, you know, experiences with good code and bad code, uh, you know, uh, thankfully a, a lot more good code than bad. Um, but you know, every once in a while, you do get uh, just that that one piece of code that just is oh, you don't want to ever see it again, <laughs> ever. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I can actually cite examples in Nitrous Nine from that. And, and Nick, Nick takes the easy way out. He just never accepts code from anybody else. Yeah, from yeah. scratch, so. I can't do it. He's, he's the master of reinventing the wheel. That's what I, I would say. So. And that's with high-level languages. I mean, you get down to something like assembly. I mean, you get bad assembly code, and yeah, it's just you might as well just rewrite it. I mean, screw it. You know, just just toss it aside. Take what whatever logic you can gleam out of it, whatever good little bits and pieces you can pull out of that, and just rewrite it from scratch. I mean, yep. that's yeah, that's I usually agree. the best option with this. Like some of these assembly language programs I've talked to that I've had to take over projects, they'll they'll keep the assets, like any sound that was done or or graphics or tiles or whatever that are good or maps. They'll keep all that stuff, but they'll basically just rewrite the engine, mainly because they want to be able to understand fully with the code. And sometimes you see some weird programming technique. You just, you, you can't grok it. You look at it and go, what the hell are you doing? Here? You know, <laughs> well, it see, seems to be the, working, but I don't know why. And, and, yeah. and I guess for, in this case, I mean, like with, with Digger, I mean, I, I did that in 96, 97. And I, I, so I haven't touched it in almost 20 years. And I just recently went back to, you know, to working on it. So that, and it's, a, it's a large code base. It's almost, what, 500K? Worth of uh, worth of assembly code, so it's it's quite large to, to actually have to to consume <laughs> at any level. So it, it was commented uh, fairly well for for you know at the time, um, but yeah, there was just some really terrible coming. That the the guard AI is is just absolutely terrible. I hate working in that code, but I can't re I can't rewrite it, replace it without having to test the entire damn game. Um, so I mean, I'll be pulling stuff away like the map loaders and some of this and, and some of the, the minor stuff. But beyond that, yeah, it's uh, uh, once you got terrible code, just get rid of it. Just... Yeah, go ahead, Nick. You had something to say on that too, I guess. Uh, well, I I I, um, 
I have looked at some of my old projects from back in the 80s and I don't heavily code uh, comment my code at all but the thing is that because it's my code I know how I program I know how I think or not <laughs> and so I can actually get back into the I can understand my old code but I'm hopeless at trying to debug anyone else's code yeah, and I'm kind of in the middle. I mean, Nitrous 9 was a, de a, de a disassembly project, basically. We had to disassemble the entirety of OS 9 and try to figure out how it worked. And we had some guidance from Kevin Darling books who, you know, they'd already done this whole disassembly project years before we did, but we didn't have access to any of that. <clears throat> and then I, I kind of getting along with Chet had said, after I got out of Nitrous 9 after the end of 2001, and then I got back into it finally around 2016, 17, it was like, I was looking at my own code I wrote 15, 20 years ago, and, and, and you know, I commented it fairly well, but I also noticed that back then, obviously, I didn't really understand some of the stuff here because some of the comments are completely wrong. Mm -hmm. So I'd go down a rabbit hole trying to figure out this, this isn't what it, this does. What the hell was I thinking? Type of thing. And then also because Nitrous 9 became an open source project in the meantime, some people have rewritten other parts of the code. So I've had to figure out some of my own code that I had bad comments on that nobody touched, and I also had to figure out code that had been replaced by somebody else's code who codes differently than I would have. So I had to figure out what they were trying to do as well. And then, you know, we found a few bugs and stuff that we've had to fix over time. And I found a few bugs that I'd left in that had been there for 20 years type thing. So it's it's been an interesting experience. But yeah, I definitely was thankful that I had put in a lot of comments because 80% of the comments that Bill and I put in were right. I'd say probably more than that, probably about 90, 95% of the comments were right. There were some routines we just didn't understand. So we took best guesses. Or sometimes we'd start finger routine thinking it was doing this and you'd get through it and it's a large routine. And you get later on, oh no, actually it's doing this. And at that point in the code, you start commenting it correctly. But I didn't, I was too lazy to go back and change the previous 4,000 lines of code to fix all the, you know, the assumptions that I had wrong. So I just leave that and figure, well, I know, I know what it does now type thing. But you know, coming 20 years later down the pike, it's like, no, I, you know, I'm looking through the beginning of the code again, you wrong comments. I don't understand what the hell it's doing. Then you read later on, by the way, everything else above is wrong. It should be actually doing this you know, type of thing. So it's, it's, it's been an interesting journey. And we, and we should talk about our, uh, <laughs> Curtis uh, knows all this. If you really get stuck in a pro, pro, uh, programming problem and you just can't work it out and you spend hours banging your head trying to work out what the bug is or how to do a certain thing, I, and I think Curtis is similar, the best thing, uh, shut down, go to sleep and in the morning when you wake up you get a uh, a moment and you say ah that's the solution so i don't know what it is but uh, in your sleep you are thinking about it and you work it out in your sleep and you wake up in the morning you sit down you think okay where was i oh yeah why don't i just i just do that bang fixed and that yep. has happened so many times so that's what i do now if i'm stuck shut down go to sleep in the morning and i wake up early in the morning in in five ten minutes i've got the answer yep that works for me too and every once in a while it's even quicker than that i'll i'll just go i can't figure this out or i can't mm. figure this bug and i'll i'll go to you know watch the news or read the newspaper or read a book or whatever yep and literally I, i'll read like 10 pages and bang the light goes on yeah drop the book yeah. run back to the room try it out yeah that worked you know, and I was totally flabbergasted for three hours before that. And then 10 minutes of just shifting my brain to do something else completely not related to programming. All of a sudden my brain in the background goes, oh, by the way, you should be doing it this way. <laughs> you dumb wit. 
<laughs> yeah. Do you get that too, Chet, or are you just so genius you just get it right the first time? Um, yeah, you know, I don't, I don't worry about it too much because I, I know that at the end of the day, I'm going to end up solving the problem. I mean, I guess that's <laughs> what it boils down to. I mean, I, I've, that's that's my entire career. I mean, it's like the, this, the, 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 the first well, major bug with uh, that I had to deal with Digger had been there since the very beginning. So I'm searching through, you know, almost at the time, a little over 400K worth of code trying to find you know that one bug that I that, that had been you know added 20 year almost 20 years ago trying to figure out exactly what was doing it so you know I, people ask me well, you, have you fixed the problem and I'm like oh, I'll get to it eventually it's no big deal because <laughs> it's not I mean you're going to solve it I mean if you've been doing this long enough you know that you're going to dig into it you're going to eventually figure out what the problem is because you created the problem to begin with but do, but do you have that where you, if you separate from the code without even trying to go through it and you just go do something else or go have a sleep or whatever else, that all oh, yeah. of a sudden that inspiration just pops in for no reason at all? You're not even thinking about it? That's why I stay stoned most of the time, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that I don't have to quicker for you than us is what you're saying. Yeah, I don't, I don't have to worry about it. I mean, I'll, I'll, turn, over, I'll, I'll turn around here and, and pet the dog a little bit. I'll turn back and like, what was I doing? <laughs> and then I sit there and I think about it. I was like, oh, yeah, I was going to fix it. Oh, wait a minute. I think it's that problem. I go and dig it and I find it. I mean, getting getting high has gotten me farther. I mean, there is not a piece of code that I have not written since I started working on Digger 3 again that I haven't written stone. See, I, I did do that in my youth. I, at least I tried to. But my, my short-term memory loss was bad enough that I would just totally lose my train of thought. And I'd have to re-comment the code or re-figure out the code. And then, okay, I'm, I'm on it. And you get that tunnel vision focus too, where you can actually go in and you start doing really well. And all of a sudden something distracts you. And all of a sudden my brain just totally lost what I was doing. So the oh, short-term memory loss always went against me. It didn't help me at all. <laughs> I love that. I, I, I love purging stuff. I mean, as I, I go, uh, you know, go-kart racing is a major stress reliever to, to, to get everything out. And, and it's, uh, you know, you, you have to separate your, yourself from the code because if you get really too involved, you get hyper-focused on it. And you're only going to see the, the things from your perspective. You're not going to start seeing things, oh, well, this this works differently. So when you if you when I'm working on Digger, if I go start playing another game like, say, Super Pitfall, it's got a much different control mechanism. It's got a different feel to it throughout the entire game. So I'm sitting there playing it, and that right there is, is pulling me away from it, from what I've been doing. It's showing me some contrast between that so I actually have something to compare against. And so I started thinking, it's like, oh, wait, you know, I'm, I'm, I may not be even on the right track here. So, yeah, you really do have to separate from it because you get too involved in it. It's like a bad marriage. You, you will just never get through it. Yeah, like one thing I've noticed if I get too, too involved in the code and like hyper-focused as, as you described it, is that you'll be sitting there looking at code that has an obvious bug, but you know what the code should be doing in your own head. So you're just making assumptions. Your your eyes and your brain are skipping over lines that are blaring out at you like this is wrong, but you you're thinking what you should have done, and that's all that's registering in your brain. So you're just skimming this code and going, yeah, that should work, that should work, that should work. Even though, you know, looking after you've separated for a bit and kind of got your brain on a different gear and come back, you can do like five seconds. Well, there's the bug. It's been staring at me the whole time. Yeah, and I, and I do it in a lot of different ways. I mean, it's not just that I'll, I'll switch over to, you know, just working in a different uh, language. I'll switch over and start working on something for the uh, the, the map converter that I may need, uh, you know, a, a week or two now. Of course, I'm done with all that stuff, but I'll, I'll, I'll set that down and I'll, and I'll start working on it. It separates me from that assembly language. It gets me into, you know, more high level. I'm thinking a lot differently. I'm, I'm clearing all that. I'm not thinking at such a low level. I'm not looking five instructions ahead, five, you know, ten back trying to figure out okay what was the cc register at this particular point what was a where you know where's all this stuff coming from I, i'm looking at a much different level so I'm, uh, you start relaxing that brain you just start you know just kind of turning it into sludge the way that you should 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I have to say from the sounds of it, all, all three of us have that same experience then where you, you have to disconnect from the the immediate problem and kind mm-hmm. of change gears in your brain, whether it's by an app or substance abuse or whatever, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I have never, never abused this substance, period. <laughs> I would never do that. That does, I mean, it, well, actually I might have, if it smelled good, I probably would. It was <laughs> performance enhancement drugs. Yeah, that's right, it's medical. <laughs> Makes you genius, man. Makes you genius. Yeah. So, as Steve would say, have we beat this thing to death? I think we have. <laughs> <laughs> it was I mean, actually fun, fun, though. It was fun getting all the stuff caught up. It was fun seeing, you know, Chet actually doing active level development because that was kind of cool to just to see yeah. him thinking out loud and placing stuff around and snickering when he figured, oh, this is going to screw the player up. He's going to have to figure this one out. <laughs> everything. And then he tries and goes, oh, wait, it's too hard. I can't even do it. So. <laughs> So, yeah, we're at two hours and 35, so. Well. That's six and a half hours of content today, guys. Uh, I think we deserve a raise. We'll have to talk to Stevie about that. (laughs) Yep, we will. All right. Got to get over this quarantine, man. Can't sit online for six hours again. All right. (laughs) Yeah, my butt's numb now, so. Shall we do the outro? Yep, I think we should. Because it's not just my butt. (laughs) (laughs) This concludes another episode of Coco Talk the world's leading live talk show featuring the Tandy Color Computer. For all things Coco Talk, visit us on the web at cocotalk.live. We'd love to hear from you. Send feedback, suggestions, even segments via email to cocotalk at cocotalk.live. Coco Talk is rocking the 8-bit world, keeping the Tandy flame alive. We may be mocked, but we'll never stop, because Coco Talk is rocking the 8 Consider supporting the show with a purchase of merchandise from our retro swag shop at 8bit256.com. If you'd like to become a patron of the show, click the Patreon link at our website at cocotalk.live. Coco Talk is rocking the 8-bit world, keeping the tandy flame. Maybe mocked, but we'll never stop. Cause Coco Talk is rocking the A-B-Word. Coco Talk would not exist without the community, its cast, crew, and contributors. Thanks go to Curtis Boyle, David Ladd, Mark Overholzer, Grant Leedy, Bruce Moore, Nick Marenkis, Ron Delvo, Rick Adams, Jason Riker, Richard Lorbieski, Jim Brain, Tom C., Rob Inman, Mark Bosley, Brian Joyce, Ken Riker, David O'Connor, Brian Weasler, Terry Steggy, Nick Morota, John Strong, and many more, especially to Steve Bjork for production suggestions and James Diffendaffer for making my head explode. Please help support the Coco community by visiting some of its various contributors. A list of resources is available at imacoconut.com. That's I-M-A-C-O-C-O-N-U-T dot com. The Coco Talk theme song is copyright 2008 by D. Bruce Moore and Greg Sheeler. Mixed, mastered, and produced by D. Bruce Moore.
There we go. And we're back. Okay, well, thanks, thanks everybody for putting up for two and a half hours of more show here to get all the news cut up. Otherwise, we'd have an eight-hour show next week, um, <laughs> just for the news. So I, I think there was a lot of interesting content. There's a there's a couple of things. Uh, there's some people that we've contacted uh, from some of the stories there, like the person that has the Scart Coco. Uh, we're going to try to get him on in a couple of weeks. I'll keep you guys posted. As far as it's standing right now, it looks pretty good that we'll be able to get him on, so we can actually show off the the Scart Coco and uh, answer any questions any of us have on that because it's pretty unique to the France market from my understanding mm. and we've gotten great you know game updates and even game developer you know mantras here from uh, from Chet and, and Nick which has been pretty uh, cool a lot of game updates you said so. great what am I doing in there <laughs> <laughs> you qualify the guy with three Ferraris a great great <laughs> ego maybe is that what we're talking about I'm not sure <laughs> <laughs> okay say goodbye everybody yeah. Bye, everybody. Thanks. Bye, we'll everybody. see you guys all next week.